Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Simply Safe. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/mrcreeps. And what's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service for free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Hello everyone, we have another amazing episode in store for you today. Let's not waste any time and get right into all these amazing stories. Let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. None of the houses in my town had doors. One Halloween, I found out why. Written by Drekanox. I grew up in a small town with a population of only about 9,000 people. It was a nice, sleepy place with nothing really remarkable about it. Well, some people would point to the local gourd growing contest and disagree with me. But I never thought there was anything special about where I lived. That was until I turned 13. But I think I had my suspicions far before then. It was when I was seven and watching something on television. I must have seen this show a million times before. But it was only then that it hit me that there was something off about every house I had ever seen on television. Namely, there was a door in the front. Of course, now I realize that such a thing is perfectly normal, but not then. None of the residential houses in my town had a front door or a back door, or any other kind of door leading outside for that matter. You're probably wondering how it was that we got in or out then. The answer varied. Some people would just climb in through a window built for that purpose. A lot of houses had a fire escape, the kind you might see in places like New York City, which could be lowered down so that people could climb up. The inside of our houses were normal though, with doorways and doors inside no problem. Just no doors were there leading right outside of the house. If anyone came to visit, they would knock on a window or ring a bell outside of one. Usually, we would leave a sign outside, leading up to the front of the house, telling people how they should announce themselves. Packages would usually be left below windows in case no one was home. The pizza delivery guy would tap on our window and we would open it to take the pizza and hand over the cash. Now, this all must seem very silly to you, but I had grown up like this, and I had never questioned it. Not to say that this was true for all buildings in town. Public buildings like the school and such did have doors, but not the houses where people lived in. In addition, there was a rather strict curfew where everyone would go home by sunset. Again, I never really questioned the curfew, 
given that was it just how I was raised. That was until I turned 13. Just like many teenagers, I began questioning many of the rules imposed upon me. However, I still stuck to the curfew given how strict our town was about it. That was, except for one night, a night that I won't forget as long as I live. It all started with my friend Dan. While I remember the events of that night vividly, what led up to that night is kind of hazy. I think that Dan had lost a bet, and as a part of that, he had to stay in the school on Halloween night past curfew. Either that or it was a dare. Regardless of how it all started, Dan and I had been as thick as thieves, so I knew that I couldn't let him go do this alone. Now, while curfew was enforced in my town rather strictly, it was generally okay if you were an hour or so late. Not so for Halloween. On that night, everyone, even the adults, went back home far before it became dark. As a matter of fact, we even did our trick-or-treating one day before, on October 30th, and that too while the sun was still up. My house didn't have a fire escape, so my choice of exit was a window on the ground floor. When my parents were busy with something in the kitchen, I gently slid the window open and hopped out. It honestly surprised me just how easy it was to sneak out. Then again, now that I think about it, I feel guilty because it probably meant that my parents just implicitly trusted me that much. I landed on the ground lightly and slid the window so it was open just a crack for my return. I should have realized as I wandered around the street and saw no one that this was a bad idea. But when I saw Dan, my resolve strengthened, and we made our way to our school. You have the camera? I asked him. Yeah, he said with a grin. I had always thought that there would be police cars or the like patrolling these streets during the curfew to enforce it. But now... The streets were totally empty. This should have been a clear message to us that we should have turned around. But we were two boneheaded teenagers and we thought nothing of it. The school itself had a strange haunting feeling to it. It wasn't held by the fact that this was Halloween night and the decorations everywhere leered at us. I knew that there was no way that... I would have the courage to come here by myself if ever asked to. Man, who would have thought the day would come when you would sneak out of your house to go to school? I asked. Dan chuckled. He was rather famous for ditching school, but I was usually too chicken to join him. I was also kind of a bookworm and a teacher's pet 
and I didn't want to miss out on school. And Dan could usually drag me into almost anything, but that was one of the exceptions. That was part of why I wanted to be with Dan this night. I wanted to finally do something really crazy during my adolescent years. Hey, come here, Dan said. The front door is locked, but I left a window open. The two of us were used to jumping into buildings through windows, and we found ourselves inside of an old classroom that we had been in two grades prior. I was about to ask why he chose this one in particular, but then remembered that our new one was on the second floor. So, what now? I asked as the two of us had made it inside. Dan turned on the camera and introduced himself. Yo guys, it's me, your boy Dan. And here we are at school on Halloween night, he said. His style was rather similar to those old school YouTubers. You can maybe even imagine him adding in that you should like and subscribe at the end of the video. So yeah, we're here and just to prove that this was on Halloween. I'm leaving this right here. He pulled out a pine cone which he had painted blue. I'm going to put this on our desk to prove that we were here. If anyone in the morning saw that, they would just think that it was some weird art project that someone left. But anyone who saw that tape, they would know otherwise. Come on, Dan said, motioning for me to follow him upstairs. Now that I look back on the whole thing, it was odd that the door of the classroom wasn't locked and that we could go wander around the school so easily. But thinking about it some more, it was obvious why they wouldn't bother locking it up, because no one was stupid enough to break in. We went up the stairs and every single squeak and creak sent me nearly jumping out of my shoes. Dan shook his head as he saw me, he had nerves of steel. At least he did for now. The two of us walked into our classroom and set the pine cone on the table. Dan took out the camera to start talking to it again when I heard something very loud. Dan stopped talking as I peeked out of a window. I saw some shadowy figures nearing the school. Dan! We're being found out. Dan took a quick look as well and motioned for us to hide. I didn't notice it since I got only a quick glance outside. But the figures, they all had very odd proportions. In other words, they were not human at all. But at the time, I had really just assumed that our parents had come looking for us. Dan turned off his flashlight and also his camera, and I turned off mine as well. After some whispering, we both decided to try and use the other set of stairs to get to a room at the back of the school. 
If push came to shove, we could get outside through a window and sneak out behind the school. It was a bit harder maneuvering given that we weren't using flashlights. But as we heard the sound of footsteps, we quickened our paces. Here, Dan said while opening the door. Both of us ducked into a classroom, and I began wiggling a window free so we could get out. Come on, Dan. Let's go, I told him. We had pretty much done enough risky things that night to become living legends among the class, as far as I knew. So, even if we hadn't technically spent the whole night at school, it was still pretty cool, and no one would look down on us. However, Dan seemed to be frozen in place for some reason. I tried shaking him, and he just pointed out the other window, out into the hallway. I couldn't see his expression in the darkness, and all he did to acknowledge my prodding was to raise his flashlight and turn it on. One of those things was standing right outside of the window. There was no other way for me to describe it other than a thing. It had to be about seven feet tall. It had a lower body which was mechanical. Its upper portion was wearing some sort of military coat, and its head was smashed in and deformed. It only had one discernible eye, which was focused on us. Dan screamed, his nerves of steel broken, and I grabbed his hand and had to almost practically drag him out of the window. The two of us didn't look back as we raced back to our houses in only half the time that it had taken us to get there. Needless to say, my parents were both very worried and very upset at me sneaking out. And oh, I was punished extremely severely for what I had done. But when I told them the story about what I had said, both of them had horrified looks on their faces. The two of them whispered to each other, and my dad told me a story. Son, normally I would tell you this when you turned 18. But now that you've seen one of them, what are they? I burst out. Calm down, we don't know, my dad explained. At some point during the Cold War, our town was a testing ground for the military. They were trying to create a new type of soldier, and it went wrong somehow and they just left. But then those things began wandering these streets at night, and they would burst into people's houses, knocking down the door no matter what it was made of, or how many locks you put on it. They could sense life, and we couldn't hide from them in any reliable way. One or two people were injured, and many just disappeared after encountering them. We thought about abandoning the town, but, well... We found a way to deal with them. Whatever programming they had, had a severe flaw. They couldn't find their way into places that didn't have a door. 
seems like they wouldn't even identify it as a house. And so, that's why we make houses like this. Why on Halloween though? My dad shrugged. Some people say that they were made using malevolent spirits and fusing them with technology at the time somehow, which is why they become more active on Halloween, but no one knows for sure. Maybe that's the reason they can't get in if there's no door. Perhaps these spirits or entity they're based on can only get in through a doorway. Anyway, they may or may not turn up on any given night, but they are always active on Halloween. You two are lucky to have escaped. After the explanation, there was a lot of yelling, and long story short, I was grounded for most of my teenage years. With all that said, our town isn't a bad place. It's honestly really nice. Just in case you happen to visit, make sure to not stay around past night, especially if it's Halloween. I would like to take a moment to talk about today's Creepscast sponsor, Simply Safe. They just launched their new wireless outdoor security camera, and this thing is awesome. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech and security features that you want and need to help keep you and your family safe. Personally, I always recommend to my family and friends that they invest in a security system for the peace of mind that it provides. And Simply Safe tops the chart when it comes to security systems. Their new wireless outdoor security camera has a ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. Complete with 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means that you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. It has a built-in spotlight with color night vision, so you can keep an eye on what's going on day and night. It's super simple to set up and usually just takes minutes. And it has an easy to remove rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all and it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/mrcreeps. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service for free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash mrcreeps. I was found on Halloween 1993. No one could figure out where I came from. Written by Ah Directions. On the evening of Halloween 1993, a family on their way to Cheyenne stopped their station wagon in the middle of a desolate road after seeing a 10-year-old girl walking by herself. They had been alarmed at the sight of the kid wandering around without her parents in the middle of nowhere and wanted to give her a helping hand. The child was dressed in a Halloween costume, a skeleton to be precise and was later described to the police as disoriented and confused. 
When the family asked the child what she was doing on the road all by herself, she said that she was trying to find her way back to her hometown, Ataraxia Springs. The father and the family brought out his map from the car, but soon realized that there was no such town in Wyoming. That child walking by herself on that fateful Halloween night was me. The events described above are well documented, and no one is contesting the way that I was found. But how I ended up on that road all by myself was never fully explained. There had been no missing children reports filed fitting my description, and they were never able to locate my parents, even though I told them their full names and phone number. All they had to go by was my own story about what had happened that night. A story that they couldn't believe. In the end, after several years of therapy, I didn't believe it either. I accepted the fact that I had most likely been kidnapped by awful people, or perhaps even born into that horrific fate, and chosen to forget it and replace it with my own version of the truth. I was taught that when memories contradict reality, it must be the memories that are wrong, and not the other way around. They made sense to me, and I slowly came to terms with the fact that my childhood memories were false. It wasn't until last week that I had reasons to revisit these memories of mine. Something happened that made me doubt what all those years of therapy taught me. That's why I've decided to share my story once more, partly for my own sake, just to make my memories merge with physical reality on the paper, if that makes any sense, but also to reach out to others who might have experienced something similar and might also be wondering if that old, strange memory of theirs might in fact have happened after all. Some of the details in this story are based on the diary entry that I wrote down after I had been found, but I still remember most of what had happened vividly, and I remember Ataraxia Springs. It was built around an old tuberculosis sanatorium that had been closed down after the discovery of antibiotics in the late 20s. This detail was drilled into our brains during school, since our town took its own history very seriously. The sanatorium itself was built across the lake beside the town, where it was still standing. The older kids had a lot of ghost stories about the rundown building, stories that they loved to tell around the campfire on the beach with Ataraxia Sanatorium casting its frightening shadow on the water from the other side of the lake. Uh, other than this piece of history, the town was your average American town. My parents, not my foster parents, but the ones that were never found, were good to me and my older sister. They gave us a happy childhood and a nice neighborhood, and as far as I can remember, if it is a memory at all, nothing was out of the ordinary. Not until that night. Halloween was a big deal in our neighborhood, and everyone always tried to outdo each other with their costumes. This year wasn't any different. The air was filled with excitement, and I really loved the skeleton suit that my dad had bought me. My sister was a bit too old for trick-or-treating, 
but she had promised to do it with me so that our parents could stay home and hand out candy to the other kids and most likely have some time to themselves. It was all going well until my sister's punk rocker friends showed up on their bikes. I hated them. They were Ryan, Johnny, and Ashley. They gave the neighborhood a bad reputation, or so everyone thought, and they always teased me. Nay, Marjorie, Brian shouted to my sister. Are you babysitting tonight out of all nights? Ryan continued and said that they were going to the sanatorium. I don't remember which words he used exactly, but he said something about it being the perfect night for it and that it was a shame that she had me tied around her ankle like a shackle. I was already afraid, looking up at their tall bikes at the end of the cul-de-sac, because I knew what was coming next. I looked up at my sister and I grabbed her hand. Back then, I thought of her almost as an adult, even though she was just a teenager. She hesitated, and there was some arguing back and forth until... It was decided that she would bring me with them. Come on, Melissa, she said, and looked at me as my heart sunk into my belly. What's the worst that can happen? It'll be fun for you too, just like one of the adventures in your favorite movies. I said no, but she told me not to be such a crybaby. She didn't want to miss out on her friend's adventure or some quality time with Ryan. I was an inconvenience. And although my sister tried to convince me that it would be fun for me too, I remember feeling like a fifth wheel. My sister left me with her friends for a few minutes while she sneaked into the garage to grab her bike. It felt like hours. Ryan lit a cigarette with his Zippo. I couldn't understand what my sister saw in him. With his black mohawk, combat boots, and leather jacket with F.U. painted on its back, he looked more like the villain in the Disney movies that I loved to watch than the prince. My sister wasn't like him at all. She was one of the popular girls at school who everybody loved and aspired to be like. And to my mind at the time, it just didn't compute how someone as sweet as my sister could have a thing for someone like Ryan. It infuriated me. I wanted to run home and tell my mom, but I knew that it would just lead to an ugly fight. My sister put me on the carrier of her bike and told me to hold on to her. We took the shortcut through the woods which meant a bumpier ride. The sun was already setting and the closer it came to the horizon, the faster my heart beat in my chest. Their laughter echoed up between the trees, like hyenas on the hunt. I was so mad at my sister, but also at myself for letting her take me along. The water in the lake was still this night, reflecting the dark clouds above. They left their bikes in the sand. Marjorie grabbed my hand and followed the others to the old boathouse at the edge of the beach. I tried not to look across the lake, where the sanatorium rose up from the treetops like an evil castle from the movies. There was an old rowboat inside of the boathouse. A wind was building up outside, sending small waves inside that lapped up against the side of the boat. I felt a lump in my throat. Water wasn't my element. I could swim, but if I couldn't reach the bottom of my feet, I used to panic. 
So, sitting in a fragile old rowboat with a bunch of renegades didn't sit well with me. I held my sister's jacket as tight as I could in the boat. Ryan kicked the boat out of the house and grabbed the oars. There wasn't that much space, and every time the boat rocked, I closed my eyes and tensed up in anticipation. Marjorie's friends teased me when they saw how scared I was, especially Ashley. Many kids have drowned in this lake, she said. There's something living at the bottom that feeds on little girls like you. She laughed. Let's hope it's sleeping tonight. Don't be mean, my sister said. I don't believe in any of those stories. There have been some strange things happening in this area, though, Johnny said. My dad told me that a couple went missing around the lake like 20 years ago. I didn't want to hear about it. He sounded serious, not like he was teasing. I looked at my sister to see if she believed him, but I couldn't tell. And then Johnny continued. They were never found. Maybe they just decided to ditch this boring town. Ryan said with a smirk. Sure, Johnny said. But their disappearance isn't the strangest thing about this. While they searched for them... They found this old dude wandering around in the forest, who claimed he was the guy who had disappeared. He was taken in as a suspect since he was way too old to be that guy. They never got any answers from him though. He took care of himself in his cell before they could question him. My dad was the one to find him. We reached the other side of the lake, just beneath the sanatorium. It smelled of old seaweed and rotten eggs. Decaying reed crunched under our feet as we stepped ashore. A couple of ducks flew away, scared by our presence. I held my sister's hand. The sky was covered in heavy clouds and a rumble spread among them. This was the first time any of us stepped foot on the other side of the lake. And I could see that my sister was afraid as well, even though she tried to hide it behind her exaggerated smiles towards Ryan. He lit up another cigarette. Let's go, he said. I've always been curious about this place. We followed him up an overgrown road. Something rustled in the bushes. I asked my sister what it was, hoping that she would calm my nerves. But instead, Ryan answered. There are ghouls hiding in there, so don't go too close. Don't listen to him, my sister said. It's just birds. But I was already terrified. It wasn't just these scary noises, but the entire atmosphere around this place. It just didn't feel right. Something in the air felt off. Ordinary things came off as strangely unfamiliar. The leaves on the ground seemed too large, the trees too tall, and the sky too vicious. The courtyard was covered in gravel but there was decayed grass sprouting up from it here and there. Slowly, we approached these stairs to the entrance. Can't we go back now? I asked my sister in a whisper. Do we have to go inside? The doors were locked. Ryan pulled at them as hard as he could, hoping that the old doors wouldn't stand a chance against his strength. But they wouldn't move an inch, and it made me relieved, but Ryan was relentless. He insisted on trying to find another way inside, 
We walked around the building, struggling through the brushy terrain, until we found a small rusty door at the other side. The purpose behind this door was difficult to figure out, since it was almost completely inaccessible. To my great disappointment, it was open. As soon as we had closed the door behind us, the thunder outside intensified in an instant, and hard rain banged on the door. Ryan lit a zippo, revealing a small corridor inside a large cellar. The cold air smelled musty. There was graffiti on the walls, dating back a long time by the looks of it. Ryan slowly moved his lighter across the wall, reading a text that had been sprayed on it with a dark red color. If you close the door, it's already too late. What's that supposed to mean? Johnny said. Ashley, scared for the first time this night, tried to open the door again, but it wouldn't budge. Come on, guys, I can't get it open, she said, just as if she suddenly sensed some kind of danger. Help me out, would ya? Ryan and Johnny joined her, but no matter how much they tried, the door remained closed. Marjorie, I looked up at my sister. What's happening? I'm afraid. I, I don't know. I, it was unlocked just moments ago, Ashley yelled. Everyone was freaking out, yelling at each other until Ryan raised his voice. Enough! He paused to make sure that everyone was quiet. Let's just find a way up to the main entrance and exit from there. Worst case scenario, we climb up out of one of the windows. Come on, relax. My sister relaxed her grip around my hand, clearly calmed down by Ryan's words. I have a really bad feeling about this place, Ashley said. I don't know. It just washed over me like a freaking tsunami. This strange feeling of, I don't know, just a scary feeling. Of dread, my sister asked with a shaky voice. I felt it too. You're all getting worked up about nothing, Ryan said. Get it together. It's all your fault, I said. You shouldn't tell us what to do. This was your stupid idea. Shut up, Melissa, my sister said, blushing from embarrassment. What? I said. Mom is right. Your friends have a bad influence on you. Shut up, my sister yelled. My God, Melissa. Ryan laughed. It's okay, he said. She's just scared. Moms suck. Johnny added with a smile, but still shaken up just like the rest of us. I hate my mom. She's always telling me what to do and how to dress and what to think and whatnot. I crossed my arms in anger at their attitudes that had clearly gotten us into trouble. Well, if you listened to your mom, maybe you wouldn't be trapped here, would you? We aren't trapped, Ryan said and led the way through the dark corridor. It felt like we walked around the cellar for more than an hour without finding a staircase. And when we did, it didn't lead to the main floor, but rather to the floor above it. It didn't make any sense. We came to a ward filled with old beds. The windows were large, but too high up for any of us to reach them. In that sense, the room reminded me of the church downtown. 
The windows vibrated for every lightning strike outside. Johnny pointed to one of the beds. Unlike the others, it wasn't empty. We approached it carefully. My sister covered my eyes when we came close enough to see what it was. But their scared voices and Ashley's screams told me all that I needed to know. She must have been gone for decades, Johnny said. I mean the body is mummified. Oh my god. It was Ashley. She is wearing my watch. Your watch? It's a coincidence, I mean. Ryan said but was interrupted by Ashley. What does it mean? Why the heck is she wearing my watch? We need to get out of here, my sister said. This is a person. We need to call the... Where did the lower part of the body go? Johnny said. It looks like it was ripped. No, 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 Ashley cried. It's not a coincidence. It's my watch. But you're still wearing it, Ryan said. Marjorie's right. I think we need to report this. We left the room, all scared to the bones. I know that I'm wearing my watch, but her watch had the exact same crack in the glass and everything. I know it doesn't make any sense, but that was my watch. She cried, holding on to Johnny. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything, Ryan said. It was just a coincidence. We kept trying to find a way out, but the inside of the building was like a maze. My legs ached after walking so much. Another terror erupted from my core and spread out to my skin in the form of a cold shiver. By now, I understood. Our parents must have begun to worry, maybe even gone out to look for us. I felt bad for having disobeyed them, and I feared their punishment even though they would probably just ground me for a week. Had I known that, I would never see them again. I would probably have felt something else entirely. We took some rest inside a small library that must have been used by the patients back in the day. The shelves were still filled with books, but they had all decayed over the decades. I sat down next to my sister on what had once been a luxury's divan. Are we in danger? I asked. Are we not going to get out? No, my sister said. It just looks scary, but there's no one here. We just need to find a... Oh, what's this? Ashley said, now a bit calmer than before. It's beautiful. She removed a newspaper from the floor and picked up a golden sphere the size of a cannonball. It's pretty heavy. If it's real gold, it must be worth a fortune. We all placed ourselves around her and watched our reflections in the shiny surface of the sphere, transfixed by its perfection. And that's when we heard a crash from further up the hallway outside of the library, followed by a scraping sound just as if something large was being dragged over the floor. I froze in fear when I heard that it was moving in our direction. What the heck is that? Johnny said. Ryan, go and check it out. Ryan hesitated, unable to decide if to be brave or to listen to his instincts. He gave my sister a quick look, and she shook her head as if to tell him not to go. The most horrifying sound I've ever heard came from whatever was slithering through the hallway. 
It sounded like an oversized pigeon, but also like he's snickering from an old wedge. Dude, I'm sorry, Ryan said. There's no way that I'm going out there. We retreated to the next room, a recreational room with a pool table. Ashley still held the gold sphere in her hands. Another crash just outside. It sounded like the entire door and some of the walls to the library had been completely destroyed. The cooling and snickering intensified. There was excitement behind it. The same kind of excitement you would expect from a starving hag in a fairy tale who's just about to feast on an innocent child. We were all standing behind Ryan, looking into the library. A shadow appeared on the floor, followed by an enormous gray hand with black claw-like nails. We all screamed in unison and backed up against the pool table, but there was nowhere to go from there. The hand grabbed the floorboards and dragged whatever body it was attached to closer to our room. I was so scared that my knees were shaking. The menacing cooling was so loud now that I had to put my trembling fingers in my ears. My sister repeated the prayers that she so reluctantly told in church. There were tears in her eyes. Another giant hand, dragging its body even closer, but still not into view outside of the room. Help me out, Ryan said. He picked up a few books from the floor and lit them on fire with his lighter. Johnny joined him. I'm sure my sister would have helped as well, but she had to take care of me. Ashley dropped the sphere and hid behind the pool table, crying hysterically. Slowly, the monster dragged itself into view, and my sister released a guttural scream. I wanted to look away, but I was paralyzed by fear. The creature faced us. It was nothing more than a giant, saggy head that pulled itself forward with its long arms that were attached to its temples. A few long strands of black hair grew on top of it, and it had a long, crooked nose above its terrifying mouth. It was enough to make it the most dreadful thing I've ever seen. But what made it even worse were its eyes. Two enormous, expressionless, golden spheres. We could see our own reflections in them. It went cooing and it licked its gray lips with its black tongue. It was just about to stick its arms into the doorframe and rip it apart. When Ryan and Johnny began throwing the burning books at it, it backed away, screaming like an oversized infant. Come on, Ryan called out. Let's go. My sister picked me up in her arms. We ran past the monster while it was still deflecting the flames, but Ashley was too late. The second that she appeared in the doorway, she was grabbed by the legs and pulled into the mouth of the monster. She cried out for help in a state of utter panic, but the sharp, large teeth cut through her legs. The crunch when they went through her bones was chilling to hear. Johnny stepped forward and grabbed Ashley's hands. He pulled until the thread still attached to her legs separated, and we dragged her into the hallway, leaving a trail of red on the floor and continued into another ward. Ryan and Johnny put her into a bed. She was still alive, but the old sheets quickly turned red from the liquid pouring out from beneath her waist. We're back, she said, 
Can't, can't you see? Johnny cried at the bedside. No, we'll get you to a hospital. The cooing echoed through the hallway. No, Ashley said. This is it for me. I love you. Now go. Johnny kissed her face as she lost consciousness. No, 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 don't. I love you too. I'm sorry, my sister said, but it's almost here. We have to get the heck out of here. The monster spat something out that landed with a bang outside of the door. It was one of the golden spheres. It sounded hungry now, and we ran for our lives. More hallways and more staircases and more wards and offices, but no exit. However, impossible as it may sound, the building was bigger on the inside than on the outside. The queen stopped behind us. We slowed down. My sister put me back on the ground and let me walk by myself. She was too tired to carry me any further. This place goes on forever, Jenny said. It's a nightmare. There's no end to it. That text on the wall, it was right. It's too late. We're just running in circles, going back in time. My god, Ashley. It was really her that we saw. There's a way out, Ryan said. We just haven't found it yet. What's wrong with this place? My sister said. It's like the laws of nature don't apply here. And that horrible thing back there. Are there more of them? It must have come straight out of hell. It spat one of those spears out too. Did you see that? Hell is a place on earth, Ryan said. He tried to light a cigarette, but his hands were shaking too much. Those golden spears looked like its eyes. And perhaps their eyes too. It spat them out to see further, you know. It appeared when we found the first one, and it spud up after it had spit out the second one. I screamed. What is it? My sister asked. Bugs, I said. Look around that crack. Hundreds of them were crawling around a crack in the floor. Small black beetles with green spots on their backs. I hated bugs. It's okay, my sister said. Just don't step on them. I've never seen any bug like that before, I said. We moved forward until we came to an empty swimming pool. Several golden spheres lay at the bottom of it, shining in a strange moonlight coming in through the windows at the other end of the room. The faint cooing started as soon as we saw them, now coming from several different directions. I cried, but not because of the cooing. I was seeing something in the corner of the ceiling, a black shadow that slowly unfolded itself. There are more of those heads, Johnny said. Can you hear it? What is that? Ryan said as soon as he saw the shadow. One leg after another extended out of the shadow until eight long monstrous legs had appeared out of its body, like an enormous spider. We ran next to the pool to get to the exit at the other end of the room. The spider quickly came down from its hiding spot, climbed on the pool and continued towards us. The legs weren't attached to a body of their own, but to the back of a decaying human one. I screamed for my sister to pick me up, but there wasn't any time for that. I had to run, faster than I had ever run before. 
Holy crap, Johnny said. God, no, oh no. The spider was just about to pierce me with one of its legs when we entered the door, which fortunately was too small for the spider to enter. Holy crap, that was close. Ryan said as we ran further away from the swimming pool. No, 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 Johnny continued, tears forming in his eyes. How is this possible? It can't be. At least we got away from it this time, Ryan said. Let's hope that we won't end up back. It's not that, Johnny said. The body, he cried now. That body attached to those legs. It was wearing my jacket. God, no. Maybe it doesn't have to happen like that, my sister said. Maybe we can avoid it. Well, it didn't work out so well for Ashley, did it? Johnny said. And besides, how do you avoid something like that? We don't know how it could happen in the first place. Calm down, Ryan said. Let's stay focused on the here and now, okay? I'm feeling a breeze. Are you feeling it too? He was right. We all felt it. Thinking that it was an exit, we ran in the direction of its source. But it wasn't a way out. At least not the one that we had been looking for. We came to a large balcony with open doors looking out over an unimaginable view. I told you, my sister said as we stepped onto the balcony. We're in hell. In front of us, a landscape made out of living flesh and bone spread out all the way to the horizon beneath the scarlet sky. The ground itself was moving as if it was breathing, and the leafless trees moved their branches like tentacles. Enormous creatures walked across the surface, fighting each other, and the flesh of these screaming birds above us was exposed to the weather. A strong smell of meat and brimstone filled the warm winds. Slowly, a dark gas giant with violent clouds rose to the sky like a black sun, and the monsters howled excitedly to the sight of it. I don't know about hell, Ryan said, but it definitely isn't Earth. Millions of bugs erupted from large pores in the ground, swarming in front of the colossal planet climbing the sky. A few of them landed on the balcony. It was these same type of bugs that we had seen earlier. And then Johnny sneezed, followed by what looked like a panic attack. Crap, he said. It crawled into my nose. Seriously? Ryan asked. I can still feel it crawling around inside of my sinus. Johnny said while trying to blow it out of his nose. Help me, please. I think it's eating its way. He sounded dizzy. Let's get back inside, Ryan said, even though we were already running back. We didn't get far until Johnny fell down on the floor, convulsing and foaming at the mouth. My sister picked me up, knowing full well what was about to happen. But Ryan sat down next to Johnny and tried to help him in whatever way he could. But there wasn't any hope for Johnny. The convulsions turned into jerks and jolts erupting from his back. Ryan stood up, pale from the sight of his best friend shaking uncontrollably in front of him. After about a minute, the seizure stopped abruptly. Johnny opened his eyes, a bit groggy. What, what happened? He said. Why am I on the floor? Are you okay, man? Ryan said smiling. I thought that we were going to lose ya. 
My sister wasn't convinced and took a few steps back with me. Yeah, Johnny said, smiling back and trying to get back up on his feet. I feel fine, but that was a wild. A sudden jolt spread through his body. Wait. And then he screamed. He touched his back and it was covered in red. He screamed again much louder this time. I heard his jacket being torn apart from the inside and a slimy spider leg grew from his back. He begged us to help him as his face twisted in pain, but there was nothing that we could do. Ryan backed up to my sister grabbing her hand, and the process was quick. One leg after the other shot out from Johnny's back as he was screaming. He tried to crawl away, but the legs wouldn't let him. Instead, they stood up, carrying Johnny above the ground. Help me, he said as the legs began walking away with him. No, don't let it happen, please, help me. The legs walked away from us with him, and none of us dared to do anything. I'm still alive, he cried. There must be a way. The legs climbed up the wall and walked into another hallway. No, we heard Johnny yell as he struggled, fruitlessly trying to grab the wall with his fingernails. Please, no. We stood frozen in our places until his screams faded out completely, leaving us with a faint echo of his last words between his sobs. Mom, I'm scared. Mom. It wasn't until the cooing increased that we began moving again. Standing still was unspeakable in this place. My sister kept me close to her and herself close to Ryan. We reached a small room with an old piano standing against one of the walls. It was a dead end. But there was something going on behind the piano that my sister insisted on investigating. A flickering light, bright and warm like sunbeams. My sister sat down next to the piano and tried to see what it was. It's a way out, she said. I can't see where it leads, but it smells like the outside. Oh, really? I said. Happiness spreading to my body. Can we finally get out of? Something heavy bounced against the floor outside of the room and slowly rolled in view in the door opening. My relief was immediately replaced by dread. It was one of the golden spheres. Help me move the piano, my sister said. Now, Ryan. I looked at them struggling with it. The monster dragged itself closer and closer while snickering and cooing louder and louder. I screamed when it appeared in front of me. Ryan and my sister used all of their strength to push the piano up to the door, blocking it. It wouldn't last long, but perhaps long enough. My sister returned to me, but Ryan wasn't so lucky. The monster reached above the piano with its long arm and grabbed him. He didn't have much time to speak, and he knew it. He picked his word carefully. Perhaps he hadn't said them before. I love you, Marjorie. I looked up at my sister and her trembling lips in an attempt to avoid the sight of him being pulled out into the hallway and eaten. But I could still hear it loud and clear. The hole in the wall wasn't so much a hole as an unstable rift in reality. There was a forest on the other side. But just for a few seconds before it changed into a desert that in turn changed into a beach. The beast outside pushed the piano into the room, 
There was no time to think. My sister picked me up and threw me through the rift. I landed on a forest floor, but not the one we had seen at first because in this forest it was dark outside. I saw the rift floating in the air. My sister was just about to jump through it, the monster's hand reaching for her. When the rift vanished, I stumbled through the woods until I came to the road, trying to find my way back home. The rest is history. As I said, over the years they convinced me that my story was nothing more than a manufactured memory, made in a subconscious attempt at coping with some trauma. But something happened, and I now think that the coping strategy might actually have been to let myself be convinced that this never happened. Last week, I received a letter. It wasn't sent by mail, but delivered by a middle-aged man who claimed that he had found it among his great-great-grandmother's things somewhere in Paris. I sat down at my kitchen table and looked at the envelope. To be delivered to my sister, Melissa Johansson, in case she's ever found after I'm gone. I opened the envelope with shaking hands. It was dated 1970. Tears ran down my face as I read it. It told the story of a teenage girl who had mysteriously appeared in Wyoming in 1889, claiming to come from a small town called Ataraxia Springs. She had gone on to live an adventurous and fulfilling life, surviving two world wars and seeing civilization go from horse and carriages to men landing on the moon. She had married, had a son that she had named Ryan, and spent the rest of her life in Europe. She was known for searching for her sister, the man said, but she never told anyone this. I thought it was fiction or the result of a well-hidden mental illness, but when I found the old reports of a young girl in Wyoming telling people that she came from a little town known as Ataraxia Springs, well, it can't be a coincidence, can it? By now, I was crying my eyes out, but it was bittersweet tears. This meant that I would never see Marjorie again, but it also meant that she had survived that horrible night and that she had lived a good life. The letter ended, All these years and I still think of you every day. I miss you. And between my sobs, I whispered, I miss you too. Grandpa's Friend Was a Tree Written by Eurudius My grandpa has been going through a lot lately. After grandma passed away, he kind of went a little mushy. We were asked to come and get him one night after he was found wandering near his house, and the police suggested that we might want to have someone keep an eye on him. Since I was just sitting around the house and doing nothing with my life, my parents extended the idea that this might give me a little freedom since I had recently been chafing under my father's rules. They gave me rules, of course, like no using my grandfather's house for wild parties, no sneaking girls in it all hours of the night, and my grandfather's safety would always come first. If we get another call about him wandering off, 
he'll be off to a nursing home, and you will be moving back home. So I moved my things in with Grandpa, and we became roommates. Grandpa was a pretty good roommate, all things considered. I lived upstairs in the loft. Grandpa had a loft-style house with a hole through the dwelling upstairs, and he lived it downstairs since it was hard for him to get up and down the stairs. I did most of the cooking and the cleaning. Grandpa bought the groceries and the beer, though that was our little secret, and we lived in harmony for most days. The only thing that annoyed me was all the stories. Don't get me wrong, Grandpa had a lot of good stories. He had been in the Gulf War and he had driven trucks in Alaska on treacherous roads, and he had spent almost all of his life in the Appalachian Mountains. In fact, this house had been his childhood home. He had many stories about camping, exploring, and roaming the woods around the property. Those I didn't mind so much. There were many nights that Grandpa and I would sit on the porch with a case of beer, and he would tell me stories of exploring the woods and discovering its majesty. It was the lies that he would tell sometimes. He made some pretty outlandish claims about the woods that I just couldn't shake off. He claimed to have met a Sasquatch running for his life as it chased him from its part of the woods. He had seen forest spirits and spent a month in their camp as time moved differently there. He had met animal people, spoken with pale, moonlight guardians that lived underground, and many other things. It wasn't just drunken tales either, those I could have forgiven, but he would ambush you sometimes with these strange little stories. You'd be washing dishes or cleaning the living room or brushing your teeth, and suddenly he would be right behind you with some tall tale. I mostly rolled my eyes at these stories, but last night... He had told me something truly ridiculous. My best friend Ren turned into a tree. I had choked a little on my beer and finally set it down. I was a little drunk and maybe shouldn't have been so frustrated, but these stories were becoming a bit much. I had heard all manner of stories from Grandpa and just sort of shrugged them off or politely listened to them but this one was so bizarre that it took me by surprise. His friend had turned into a tree. What the heck did he mean? Your friend had turned into a tree, I challenged. Grandpa nodded and took another swig of beer. How, Grandpa? Tell me how a person turns into a tree. He looked thoughtful. It's kind of a long story. Are you sure you have time for it? I was off the next day, and I nodded. Yeah, I would say that I have time for it. He finished his beer and threw the bottle into the woods, hearing it break against a nearby tree. This was a habit that he had kept from my childhood, and no one seemed to be able to break him of it. The funny thing was that, despite him smashing the bottles... I never found any glass in the woods around his house. I always assumed that Grandma had cleaned it up, but I had continued to find no glass with Grandma gone. Just one of life's little mysteries, I told myself. And so, Grandpa began his odd tale. When I was about nine, a new boy moved into the valley, 
His name was Renurde, but I always just called him Ren. His family was from the Bayou, Louisiana, and he was unsure of how things were in the Appalachians. But still, I was glad for a new playmate since our closest neighbor was about five miles in either direction, and we played in the hills and forests around our homes. Ren liked to find bugs and small spiders, and put them in a jar so that he could study them. Ren fancied himself something of a scientist, and the Appalachian Forest offered him much to explore. Now, the woods were always open to me. Mama never told us that we couldn't explore, but Grandma warned me never to go into the southern grove without her. It was beautiful there, the forest old and different somehow from the rest of the sprawling valley. I would ask her why I couldn't explore here alone, and she would say that it was dangerous if you didn't know what to touch and what to leave well enough alone. Like this, she had said, pointing at a thick, almost honey-like sap that was oozing from a nearby tree. That is the sap of the old calabash tree. You must never touch it, for if you do, not even I can help you. I had asked her why, and she had said that her grandma had told it to her, and hers had told it to her. It's just one of these rules that we follow. One of those rules we don't question. Ren was inquisitive. He wanted to explore everything, and he noticed that we were avoiding that particular stretch of forest. I had told him some stories about the place when we had first met that there were two-headed beetles that lived there, about the strange flowers and technicolor patterns, and the large trees that my grandmother had always called calabashes. He asked me to take him there, not really feeling comfortable exploring the woods alone yet. He was never far from my side when we were in the woods, and he asked me specifically one afternoon if we could go out there. We were young, Ten at the most, and it didn't take much convincing. I had tried to remain steadfast, not wanting anything to happen since. I never went there without Grandma, but he finally broke me down. I agreed to take him, but I said that he had to do what I said. Don't touch nothing, I told him, especially if I say so. He promised he wouldn't, and we had set off for the grove. We stopped at his house before setting out, and he came back with a backpack that clinked a little as he walked. I had little doubt that it was full of specimen jars and other such things. He may not have intended to touch, but he definitely intended to study. And so we made our way to the grove, and as soon as he saw the oddly colored flowers, he was in love. The grove is a special place, you see. Things there are closer to nature than anywhere else, and Grandma always said it was easier to feel the old world in places like the grove. Made a connection to the earth, a connection to magic, and the people who spend a lot of time there can sometimes hear the voices of the forest that others have forgotten. When Grandma read Robert Frost, 
she thought that maybe he had found some sort of grove of his own. We spent an hour just exploring the grove. Ren looked at the beetles, putting one in a jar so that he could study it later, and sketching some of the plants as he made notes. I showed him the calabash tree, that massive white gold giant, and I saw the wonder in his eyes that were there every time he found a bug or a leaf that he didn't recognize. He approached it, and I understood his need to touch it. I myself had needed to touch it the first time. I had really understood what I was seeing. It's the size of it, you see. Your mind tells you that nothing that big can possibly be real. But once you touch it, you know it must exist. It wasn't until I saw him take out his knife that I realized his intent. I ran forward, telling him not to, but he seemed mesmerized by the golden bark of the towering tree. He wanted some. That much was obvious. But Grandma had always made it very clear that you did not strip bark from the calabash tree. Ren didn't know. He probably assumed that a tree so large would have plenty of bark. He couldn't have known what lay beneath. As his knife slid easily into the soft bark of the calabash tree, a gold spurt of sap struck him full in the face. He stumbled back, the sap flowing as his knife quivered in the side of the massive trunk, and I saw him clutch his face and scream. I pulled him away from the tree, the roots threatening to trip him, and as his hands came down, I could see that his face was changing. His face was turning brown, his skin thickening and the pigment of his eyes were beginning to film over as though he was blind. What's happening? Ren asked, his voice deepening as his throat stiffened. I didn't know, but I knew what I had to do. I left his bag on the ground, the jars slamming together angrily and pulled him onto my shoulders. We were about three miles into the woods, but Ren wasn't very heavy. He was small even for a ten-year-old, and I pulled him out of my back and carried him with very little effort. We ran, heading for my grandmother's house. Grandma would know what to do. She could save him. As I ran, I just knew that if I could get him there, that she would save him. We hadn't gone far when he started getting heavier. Like I said, he wasn't large, but I was only ten and ran and started getting heavy. The boy was light when we had left the grove, me walking as I balanced him on my back, but he became heavier and heavier as we walked. His arms hung uselessly at my sides, and his body became like a stone on my back. My legs started to shake as my progress was slowed to a crawl. When I was drawn up short, I thought maybe one of his feet had caught on something, I looked back and almost dropped him. His feet had elongated until it drug out behind me, and his toes were becoming long and searching. They were pushing their way down into the ground, and as I pulled, they attempted to root themselves in the dirt. I pulled him along, trying my best to get him to my grandmother, but eventually, I just couldn't take him any further. We were in a clearing, 
a stream trickling through that I knew would be a heavy lifting crossing with the winter flow. And I left him there, saying that I would go and get help. Ren called me back and asked me to stay with him. I told him that I couldn't do that. If I gave up, he would be stuck like this. My grandma knew about these sorts of things and she might be able to help him. I made all kinds of excuses, but in the end, I was just scared. This was so weird, so odd, and my 10-year-old brain didn't know what to do about it. He said please and asked me to stay, his voice cracking like a branch in a high wind. And after some hesitation, I sat and said I would. His arms and legs were now stiff and bark-like, and he cried tears of yellow sap. I wanted to reach out and wipe them, but I remembered what that sap had done to him and resisted. His feet were growing, breaking the ground and sliding into the earth as they sought purchase. I asked how he was feeling and he said it was very strange. He said that as he grew, everything seemed to slow down to lengthen, and he was filled with an odd sense of eternity. He said that he felt ancient and brand new. He felt lonely yet filled with the knowledge that he was never alone. He felt sad for the life he was leaving behind and excited for the life that was beginning. The process took about 20 minutes from start to finish and I sat with him as he changed, not wanting him to go through this alone. His skin thickened and taking on a wooden cast as his legs descended into the earth. His chest expanded, Ren growing as his bones and his body grew, and his small arms were thrust upwards as he reached for the sky. His face and body sort of grew into one, becoming his trunk, and his eyes began to sink into his newly formed trunk. Much too soon, he was a tree, and I was left sitting beside a half-grown sapling with a pair of expressive rings on its trunk. I sat there, mouth agape, as Grandpa finished his story. What happened after that, surely no one believed that Ren had turned into a tree. Grandpa shook his head. Only one person. My family and his spent the night searching the woods with search party from town. They thought that something had happened to my brain and made up something to cope with it. They could see that I was shaken by whatever had happened and they still wanted to find Ren and make sure that he was okay. I tried to tell them, tried to explain what had happened, but my grandma appeared at that moment and wrapped an arm around me. She told them that she would watch me while the town surged, and took me into her house for cocoa. Over cocoa and cookies, she told me that she had tried to warn me about the grove. She said it was a tragedy, what had happened but that was the way of the world sometimes. He took a last pull of his beer and launched it into the woods. She said that life was cruel sometimes, but that there was an order. Ren had tried to go against that order and he broke the rules, and that cruelty took its revenge. She reminded me that I must never go against that order, not if I wanted to live amongst nature. I thought about this before shaking my head and telling him that I didn't believe it. People don't just turn into trees, Grandpa. 
He gave me a strange look and walked into the house. I thought that was the end of the story, but that would be too easy for Grandpa. He woke me up the next morning about three hours before I wanted to be up and asked if I wanted to meet Ren. It took my fuzzy brain a few moments to realize what he was talking about before I remembered the story and asked if he meant the tree. Yes, would you like to meet him? I sighed. I didn't have anything going on that day, so I agreed. We walked into the woods, Grandpa ambling along, and hiked for about an hour in the crisp morning air. For a man in his 70s, Grandpa moved with an odd grace through the familiar woods of his childhood. I supposed he always had, but it was more pronounced now that he was so old. The squirrels and birds were just starting to get noisy, and I could hear the sounds of the forest as we walked. The wind in the trees, the soft noises of small animals in the brush, as they avoided the louder sounds of people, the sigh of the leaves as they pushed and pulled towards their inevitable decay. Having come here often to see my grandparents, I too had become aware of these sounds of tempers on the Appalachian Forest. My cousins and I had often found it beautiful and mysterious, but it could also be fickle and temperamental. Just ask my cousin Jeremy who had twisted his ankle in a hole, only to find that hole was the home of a rattlesnake. If I could ask him since he had died while we were getting help. Grandpa led us to a clearing, a small stream bubbling beside it with fresh snow run, and I could see a large golden bar tree growing not too far from that river. It was towering, probably 15 feet tall, and as I approached... Grandpa shot a hand out and pointed down. I had nearly stepped into a small stream of honey-colored sap that was trickling away from the tree and making its way towards the river. Don't want two calabash growing so close together, Grandpa chuckled. He greeted the tree as we approached and came around to its front to touch its trunk. The tree didn't move, didn't speak, but as I came up... I could see a swirl pattern on the front that looked like two huge eyes. The eyes seemed to follow you wherever you moved though, which was a little unsettling. Though unsettling, the tree looked no different from any other, except for the color and the weird sap. It wasn't until the wind picked up through the branches, shaking the leaves and making them dance that I thought I heard a creaky old voice say, Hello, Harold. In response to my grandpa's greeting, we spent some time there just talking that day. It seems I have a lot to learn from grandpa's old stories. It lives in the lower levels of the main library at Redacted University. Written by Certain Emergency 122. It is Redacted's best-kept secret. No one outside of the university knows that it exists. Its habits include terrorizing students and occasionally eating us. You're probably wondering why we would attend a school with its own personal monster. No matter how prestigious the school is, you might as well ask me why the sky is blue 
or the grass green, or why everyone eventually grows old and dies. We just do. I can't explain why. Those of us who are still alive have never actually seen it, but we hear it shrieking late at night as we're desperately shuffling through books and cramming for our examinations, fighting over the coffee that someone braver than us snuck inside. And of course, we've all seen the bodies that it leaves for us. Our first year during Trinity term, it took Jennifer Carr and then spat her mangled body back out onto the grass in front of the cam, our main library. It had taken her body from the waist down, her intestines spilled out in messy loops, and the ragged edges of her torn skin fluttered in the wind. The cam is inarguably the most photographed building of Redacted University, and Redacted Square is the top place that tourists flock to. Possibly it hates tourists as much as the rest of us do. More likely, it wanted to make some kind of point about how it chooses to stay in the cam, but doesn't actually have to. Whatever its actual shape and appearance, it always sounds like a crying girl. Emphasis on sounds because it is most definitely not human. You don't even need to see it to know that. Although they would deny it if you asked. Redacted university administrators have documentation proving that it's been here since the late 1000s, leaving behind one body after another. Obviously, no human can live that long. Two decades ago, a handful of university students got the bright idea to analyze some remains, the bodies of its victims. The rest of the community promptly shouted them down for desecrating the dead, but not before said students managed to determine that it had claws 30 centimeters long at minimum. You might think that the sound of someone crying in the dark would be out of place and warn us all off from going there. Actually, many students cry in the relative privacy of the stacks. A lot of redacted here have breakdowns in general. I once saw a classmate sit down on these steps leading to the top floor of the Bodley, the other main library. We have over 100 libraries, all with sweetly vomit-inducing nicknames, and bawl her eyes out. A herd of tourists passed by, looking alternately bewildered and sympathetic. Meanwhile, the tour guide didn't even break his stride. So hearing crying in the stacks isn't necessarily a sign of alarm. What is alarming is your friends accidentally leaving you by yourself in the lower levels after sundown. In the darkness. You're probably thinking, what darkness? It's dark because someone decided that the cam needed motion-activated lights on its lower level. A supremely idiotic notion, given that the cam is a library. And as anyone with a modicum of common sense knows, students usually stay still while reading their books, 
and absorbing the requisite amount of information to regurgitate it back into their tubes. Because I was completely alone, I had to jump up and down several times to bring the lights back on. I looked frantically up at the graded ceiling to see if I could spot any of my friends above me. The same brilliant mind that had dreamt up installing motion-activated lights in a library had also decided that the floors of Cam's lowest levels needed to be made out of metal grades. This meant that on an ordinary day, if you happened to be sitting at a table on a lower level, bits of mud from people's shoes dropped through the grades from the floor above and onto your head and books. Ominously, I couldn't see anyone above me either. At least the grades made sure my screams would echo beautifully through the above floors, warning off everyone else from this level. Milton's Paradise Lost just had to be shelved here, I thought bitterly, and I just had to write my 3,000 word paper tonight. The lights began to dim yet again, so to keep them on longer, I waved my arms wildly like someone on the airport at tarmac waving down an airplane. And that was when I heard it. Somebody crying. Maybe I wasn't completely alone. Or maybe it had noticed that I was, and fancied itself a mid-afternoon snack. I tucked Paradise Lost under my arm, collected the books that I had scattered across the table, and shouldered on my messenger bag, preparing to leave. Just because my friends had happened to abandon me, didn't mean that I was an utter dolt. We roamed the lower levels in packs because... We knew that it usually went after people wandering around by themselves. Did it truly expect that I would simply walk into the stacks, offering myself up like a dim-witted, sacrificial lamb to the altar? The usual etiquette is to pretend that you don't notice anyone crying and or loudly losing their crap. But I'm not completely heartless. Yes, I didn't care enough to venture into the stacks. But I didn't want to leave anyone by themselves down here either. So on the off chance that it was an actual human being crying, not a monster trying to lure yet another victim to their doom, I said, Is anyone else there? No one responded. The sobbing simply grew louder. I edged toward the exit as I scanned my surroundings. I couldn't see anyone or, more to the point, anything. Which didn't mean much because, even when the lights stayed on, they were so dim that you couldn't see more than five feet away from yourself. Naturally, today was the one day that I had forgotten to bring my portable phone charger, so I had no handy flashlight to light my way. My dead phone sat heavily in my pocket, a useless lump of metal. Click, click. I heard a faint clicking noise, though the increasingly loud sobbing drilled into my ears and prevented me from pinpointing where it came from. I suddenly had a horrible image of something right behind me, something monstrous inching ever closer, drooling and leering and capering in the dark with malicious glee. I whirled around, the space behind me was empty. 
three more clicks. I glimpsed a black shadow out of the corner of my eye. It swooped down into the darkness at the end of the room, too fast for me to make out any details. It was stalking me through the stacks, toying with me like a cat toyed with a mouse. Of course, right as I had this realization, the lights went out because I had been standing still for too long. The sobbing stopped abruptly. In the darkness, the clicking noise grew louder. Four clicks. I ran. I ran with my arms out out in front of me and sweat pouring down my forehead. I crashed painfully into the tables that I couldn't see and bit down on my cries of pain because I didn't want to draw any more attention to myself if I could help it. Running brought the lights back on and I saw the exit on my right. I veered towards that direction with my heart in my throat, my ears straining to hear any movement behind me. Just as my fingers touched the handle of the door, some great force lifted me and threw me like a rag doll against the closest bookshelf. I hit the shelf so hard that it toppled over and rained books down on me. Red rained down my forehead from a cut and it dripped into my eyes. I wasted precious seconds just sitting there, in the middle of all those fallen books, too stunned to move. The sound of clicking from above finally made me look up. It clung to the grated ceiling with sharp claws, a vast mass of darkness that my eyes kept sliding off of, as though I gazed at something too horrible to look at for long. Disapparate details jumped out of me, clawed-tipped leathery wings straining against the ceiling, and a sharp, cruel mouth that curved into a mocking smile. I met half a dozen dark yellow eyes watching me, pupilless and scattered across all that darkness. They shone with malevolent intelligence and insane triumph. Those eyes told me that my death wouldn't be slow. It would pluck me from where I sat, and it would bring me back to its underground lair, to the mounds of rotting bodies stacked almost to the ceiling. It would savor my terror and my suffering for as long as possible. Oh, how lovely. I staggered up to my feet, hopelessly knowing there was no point. A sharp pain pierced my side and my vision kept doubling. I had nothing to use as a weapon and I couldn't outrun it. Yet as I glanced to my right, my breath caught in my throat. What it should have done earlier was throw me backwards, deeper into the stacks. Instead, its hunger had caused it to overlook an extremely vital fact. It had thrown me closer to the exit. I was now less than seven meters away from salvation. Once again, I ran, this time knowing that if I was just fast enough, I could make it. I heard a sharp crack, the sound of it letting go of the ceiling so that it could chase me. Five meters, three meters, two, one. I slammed the door open, ducking and rolling through just in time. 
Fiery pain erupted across my back as sharp claws dug in, seeking purchase in my flesh. I crawled free, moving on my hands and knees to the foot of the stairs. I used the railing to pull myself upright, and then adrenaline gave me the strength for a much-needed burst of speed, and I bolted up the stairs, leaving red footprints behind. As I continued to run, I heard it shriek below me in frustrated rage, the same shriek I'd heard countless times before. The volume of its cries made me clap both hands over my ears. Even then, both my nose and ears began to drip. Somehow, I kept going until I reached the lower reading room. I heard a loud babble of concerned voices and felt hands grabbing my arms. Purple spots danced before my eyes as I swayed on my feet and I knew that I was about to pass out. I only hoped that they would take me back to the redacted as far away from the library as possible. I dropped out of redacted a few months ago. They were about to rusticate me anyways. Given that I couldn't bring myself to step foot in either the cam or the bodley, both of which we were connected to each other by an underground passage, built to keep books safe from the constant rain. That wasn't much of a surprise. I had failed all of my exams. I didn't even care. I would do anything, go anywhere, just to forget the terror that I experienced while stumbling around in the dark, not knowing which way the exit was. Sometimes when I dreamed, I heard the sound of its claws as it hunted me. My parents welcomed me home without any questions or lectures. An unexpected gift. These days, I spend a lot of time thinking over and over again about how lucky I was. If it had thrown me even three feet further away from the exit, I wouldn't have made it out. It would have dug its claws into my unprotected back and ripped out my spinal cord in an ecstasy of hunger. But here's the thing. Luck doesn't last. It's proved before with Jennifer Carr that it can leave the cam if it wants to. I worry about coming home one night to see a patch of darkness moving against the sky. I worry about hearing its shrieks ringing through the air as it plunges down towards me, its sharp mouth aiming for my soft, vulnerable throat. I worry about meeting its dark yellow eyes and seeing that it still remembers me even after all this time. So I wrote this post to warn you. I don't know how long this post will stay up or if you'll even be able to understand which university I'm talking about. If the university administrators catch sight of this post, I suspect they will do what they have always done, which is sweep all information about it under the rug. I'm hardly the first student to have abruptly quit and attempted to tell others about what lives at Redacted. I most certainly won't be the last. Next year, yet more unknowing first years and visiting scholars will go to Redacted, only to find themselves in its ma. So, if you're reading this, please know. Should you find yourself in the Redacted Dreaming Spires, do make sure you avoid the lower levels of the cam.
And if you can't help but go there, whatever you do, don't stay past sundown. When the gift giver comes calling, you better be careful what you wish for. Written by that really short chick. On the morning of my birthday, I woke up to an incredibly sweet surprise. A cupcake with a little slip of paper poked out of its a delicious frosting. I immediately grinned. Imagined my mom or dad sneaking in while I was asleep to place the delicacy. After rubbing the last bits of sleep out of my eyes, I sat up in bed and swung my legs off while grabbing the cupcake off my bedside table. I also noticed a journal next to it with my name engraved on the cover in big golden letters, but the cupcake remained in control of my sleepy brain attention. I took a quick swipe at the icing and sucked it off my finger before grabbing the paper shoved in it. I was amused upon opening it when I read what it said. Happy 18th birthday, Mac. As a special gift, you've been given this list as it would fulfill all of your birthday wishes. Just write down all the things that you want, and they will find their way to you throughout the week following your birthday. I remember you saying that you needed a journal, so I took the liberty of filling in one of the blanks with that. Happy wishing. Below the explanation were four empty blanks to be filled in with whatever I could possibly want. I felt the biggest smile stretch across my face, excited at how awesome this was going to be. My parents had really thought of an incredibly awesome gift idea, and I couldn't wait to thank them. As I gobbled down the cupcake and took a peek at the monogram journal that they had gotten me, sliding my fingers around the golden letters of my name on the cover, I thought about what I wanted, writing it down as ideas popped into my head. Here's what I wrote. Minus number one, of course, which was journal. One, journal. Two, a new phone. Three, a German Shepherd puppy. Four, a new watch and five, mom's a chocolate cake. Whenever I headed downstairs, they were already in the kitchen chit-chatting over coffee. As my mom saw me coming on the stairs, she quickly dashed somewhere into the den, bringing back a present and placing it before me. I'm shocked you didn't find it this year, honestly. She joked while beaming at me, waiting for me to open it. You've managed to get at least a sneak peek every year since you were five. I guess your father is to blame for some of those years, though. She pretended to scowl at him, but couldn't keep up the act with how happy she was. My dad chuckled, pretending to shield himself from my mom's look with his coffee cup. Go on ahead and open it up, buddy, he told me. I opened it to find... a journal... It didn't have my name monogrammed on it or anything, but it was still pretty good quality. I loved it, but I was confused on why they would get me two journals. Why did you get me two? I asked. Two what? My mom asked with a confused look on her face. Journals. You got me the other one with my name on it, I replied. 
I knew my mom didn't have the best memory, but she had never forgotten anything like this before. She always forgot the little stuff, like things at the grocery store to water her plants. She wouldn't forget that she had bought me a present and would buy another one nearly just like it. I didn't get you another journal, replied my mom. She glanced at my dad and asked, Did you get him one and not tell me? My dad shook his head, clearly also confused. No. I told you that you could handle his gift this year, remember? I showed them the journal, the note, and the cupcake wrapper, which they still continued to deny placing. Honestly, at that moment in time, I thought they were pranking me, and I'm sure in their minds they thought that I was pranking them, or that maybe one of my friends were pranking us. Either way, it didn't seem like a huge deal at the time, especially after they revealed my biggest gift. They led me outside blindfolded into the driveway. After they took the blindfold off, I was shocked to see a white Nissan Altima with a big red bow on its hood, and I grinned from ear to ear, completely forgetting the rest of this morning's previous events. Day 2 For dinner tonight, my parents had decided to take me out to eat as another birthday gift. We had all discussed how strange the cupcake and letter had been, but honestly, I'm not sure they entirely believed me about the incident. I'm pretty sure that they thought I was pranking them, just as much as I initially thought they were pranking me. Even after I told them about the puppy, they still seemed a little skeptical, but I could tell that they didn't want me to think that they didn't trust me on the off chance that I was actually telling them the truth. I'd have trouble believing myself too, Really, considering I got rid of the evidence of the cupcake fairly quickly, it was pretty delicious, and it was just a very strange thing to happen. Just before we made it inside the restaurant, my parents saw a friend of theirs who was leaving. They stopped to chit-chat, and while they were in the middle of that conversation, I wandered off a bit down the sidewalk, admiring the bushes of red roses beside the restaurant windows. Their fragrance drifted through the cool breeze, calming my nerves a bit. As I glanced down the alley beside the restaurant, I noticed that they had a beautiful mural covering the brick walls. A mural of a sunset overlooking an ocean with a beautiful island in the background. I walked closer to admire it, and to get a peek at what the little figures on the sandy beach before the ocean were doing. As I neared the wall, I noticed that it was a tiny people, and they had been added fairly recently. I could see the fresh paint shining as the sun beamed down on it. And then I noticed the party hats on their heads, and the balloons in their hands, all surrounding a tiny person holding a cake. Eighteen tiny candles stuck out of the cake, lit up and waiting for their purpose, and the actual cake had an arrow painted on it. Pointed towards the right, the arrow aimed towards what I assumed was the back alley of the restaurant. After I realized there was nothing on the painting that it could be directed at. The whole scene left me feeling giddy. Surrounded by the partygoers, the lucky birthday person seemed so happy. And they didn't seem to have any other care in the world besides blowing out the candles on their cake. I wondered if that same fate awaited me within the restaurant. Would my parents surprise me with a cake full of candles, ready for me to make a wish?
Is that how they would surprise me with another gift? Finally admitting that it was them that had left the mysterious list. I felt that the painting was a sign for me, but I knew there wasn't a way to be sure without following the arrow. I felt my giddiness fade a bit as confusion took over, however. Why would my parents put another surprise in the alley behind this restaurant? Suddenly appearing a bit ominous, the possibilities behind the arrow seemed dire. A stark contrast to the brightly colored birthday cake that it sat upon. It seemed strange, but the idea that my parents were still behind the prank is what made my legs move in the direction that the arrow aimed for. I realized my judgment was incredibly flawed whenever I saw the puddle of red on the pavement, spreading gradually to its grassy cracks. I could still hear my parents' conversation carrying on, then laughing along to some joke someone had made, and my body screamed for me to become a part of that conversation that only moments before had felt like a bore to me. Splayed out on the pavement was a lifeless body, and whoever it was had unluckily had their head smashed in until they were unrecognizable. Bits of brain and bone surrounded the head, mixing with the red to form a messed up halo. Her right hand was chopped clean off, almost fascinating with how precise it seemed to be. Beside the girl's body, and firmly latched in her only remaining hand, was a shopping bag from a very popular electronic store, and the sight of it made my stomach churn. I tried to scream for help, or just scream at all, but it was like every muscle in my body had suddenly refused to operate. I couldn't tear my eyes away from the awful scene, no matter how hard I tried. The birthday list flashed into my head as I glanced at the bag, picturing a new phone. I tried to shut down that thought, but I swear that I saw the girl's fingers flexing towards the bag, like she was willing me to open it up. Just as I jerked backwards from the body so hard that I lost my balance and fell to the ground, a slip of paper flew out of the shopping bag and landed at my feet. The wind still gently blowing, it made it seem like it was nudging my foot, and my curiosity got the best of me. I unfolded the crumpled up paper and realized it was a receipt for a new phone in the exact brand that I wanted. Once again, Happy Birthday Mac was written at the top, and I felt my heart skip a beat. I had no idea who this girl was, so there was no way that she could have brought this phone for me. Someone was clearly screwing with me, but they were seriously demented enough to stalk someone and get rid of them just for me to have a phone. My eyes flashed to the empty space where her hand should be, and terrific images flashed through my mind at what it was taken for. That thought slowly trickled onto my mind as I saw black spots dancing around my vision, and I felt very dizzy. I slumped to the ground before I even realized what was happening, blacking out with the crumpled up receipt still in my clutch. Day 3 Being interviewed by the police is an absolutely horrible birthday present, but they questioned me about every single factor of my life in the current events of my ongoing birthday week before turning me loose. I didn't get to have my birthday meal, which honestly wasn't the worst part of that day. The worst part was barely being able to fall asleep, and whenever I could fall asleep, 
I would wake up screaming after having dreams of that girl and her receipt being removed and replaced in the shopping bag with her murderer's strange calling card. A calling card that had entirely everything to do with me, which is something that I'm sure the police will have trouble completely letting go of, even though I did absolutely nothing to that girl. Even with all of this happening, I sadly still had to go to school. For a moment, I wished that I had written, no school for my birthday week, on the list, but then I pictured scenes of my school being blown up or something worse happening, both making me shudder and feeling thankful that I hadn't been that selfish. My first ride to school in my new car would have been rather enjoyable, thanks to how beautiful the weather was today. But the looming threat of another gift being given to me at any moment made it nearly impossible to not be on edge. It felt like the world knew what was going on and was trying to help cheer me up. But the gift giver had made this birthday one full of nervous looks over my shoulder, checks on everyone around me's handwriting, and the fear that I might end up being the next body. I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. You know those scenes in movies that are so absolutely perfect that the characters feel suspicious of their surroundings? They want to call BS on everything, but they aren't sure if they should trust their instincts or not. That is 100% how I felt, and that is exactly how this drive to school felt too. I was just waiting for something to go wrong. And then like clockwork, I saw something on the side of the road that made me pause my anti-joyride to take a look. As I pulled over and climbed out of my car, I felt goosebumps prickle my arms. The cool breeze blowing through the trees surrounding the street felt just a little too chilly. What initially caught my eye about the object was something bright red attached to it. As I walked towards it, I quickly realized it was actually a red ribbon, and that it was wrapped around something fuzzy. I paused in my tracks at the sight, alarm bells immediately going off in my head. Even though I knew looking wouldn't lead to anything good, and even though the alarm bells just kept on ringing and ringing in my head, something else called me towards the object. I had to see what it was, but as I crept even closer to the object, my heart dropped into my stomach before shattering into a million pieces. It was a puppy, specifically a German Shepherd, that looked like it was a couple of months old before its tragic death. The poor thing looked like it had been run over, and the red ribbon was wrapped tightly around its neck. That wasn't the worst part, though. The worst part made me feel like someone had taken a scrap of my broken heart and stabbed me with it. It was the tag attached to the bow that simply read, Happy Birthday, Mac, and nothing more. I looked around through the trees, wondering if whoever had done this, whoever was messing with me, was somewhere out there watching. I didn't see anyone. I took a picture of the puppy before moving it out of the road and snatching the tag off the ribbon, making sure that it had no connection to me. I felt bad just leaving it there, but I had no idea what to do with it, and I didn't want to be late for school. I couldn't believe I had ever thought this was my parents and my friends pranking me, or that this was even a prank to begin with. They could never do something this insane and screwed up. But who could? And what did they want with me? Day 4 
Whenever he wakes up in the morning, my dad's morning routine is to grab the newspaper that has been thrown on the front porch and read it while sipping on a cup of coffee. This morning, I ended up being included in that routine whenever he gently shook me away. My eyes opened to the sight of him sitting on the edge of my bed, with a concerned look on his face, and a box in his lap wrapped in birthday-themed wrapping paper and a decorative bow on top. My parents thought that it would be best to take the present to one of the detectives working on the murder case that I had involuntarily become a part of, and I of course agreed immediately to that idea. It was a few days before they got back to us, but there wasn't a single moment in those utterly exhausting days that I didn't think about what was in that box. A million different ideas of what it could be zoomed through my head at 100 miles per hour, constantly giving me a pounding headache. I knew if it was something from the list and considering recent events, it most likely was, it would have to be the watch. Instead of the girl's hand popping in my head every time, I remembered this, making it throb even more, and it was hard to shut those thoughts down. Every time the house phone rang, I would practically torpedo across the house, waiting for all the painful questions in my head to be answered, hoping for some relief. Random calls from distant family or family friends checking on us with all that was going on annoyed me to high heavens. But finally, after those few agonizing days, they were on the other end of the phone with answers. I allowed myself hope for a moment that it wasn't what I thought it was, that my dark thoughts were just a product of my horrific flashbacks and not the truth. That hope was crushed whenever the detective explained the exact watch that I had screenshotted from a website a few months ago, still on my wrist and also apparently on the girl's severed wrist. I ran to the bathroom and vomited straight away whenever my parents gave me that information. Picturing the box delicately and precisely wrapped and decorated with the bow made my headache grow to a full-on migraine. It throbbed to the beat of my racing heart, and I felt like I was going to hyperventilate. I locked myself in the bathroom, away from my parents. My mom knocked on the door for a few minutes and I could hear the sadness and worry in her voice. I needed to be alone though, so I didn't respond. I just lay limply on the cold, tiled floor, trying to focus on not hurling again. And eventually, I heard my dad coax her away from the door to give me space. The detectives called me in to be questioned again. So, I had to suffer through these same questions of whether or not I knew anyone who could do this. Have I noticed anyone seemingly stalking me before? Is there anyone who might hate me, etc.? The questions ended with dead ends, just like they did the first time that they were asked. And I felt even more defeated than I had the first time, becoming sure that the cops had no leads and no ideas of who was messing with me. Was this what the gift giver wanted? to torment me until I was completely destroyed. If so, they were getting pretty close. Day 5 As all horror stories go, the person within them goes through periods where they believe life can't possibly get worse, all until it does. Their life becomes a steadily increasing crap show of their worst nightmares come to life, and they're just along for the ride being tossed and turned and thrown and flipped through horrible experiences, 
until they truly get to their own personal rock bottom. This is a gradual thing in these stories, and I wasn't very fond of the fact that it was being forced upon me. I stupidly thought that it couldn't get worse, and then it did. I had reached my personal bottom that had now become my life. My parents liked to go for drives sometimes, windows down and music that they grew up with blasting through the car speakers. I used to go with them all the time when I was little, and watching them have their own little mini concerts was the most hilarious and fun thing to me. I hadn't went in years, telling them repeatedly that I was true grown up for that. But after the week that I had, I gladly hopped in the car with them whenever they invited me this time. As the car glided down the road, I realized how stupid I had been for missing out on this for so many years. I never realized how much I had distanced myself from my parents. Everything was fine as we drove down our street, admiring the trees in the last glowing embers of sunlight. The sky was a beautiful mixture of oranges, yellows, and pinks, like an oil painting in the sky. The wind whipped through our hair and smelled of fresh-cut grass. Wrapped up in this peaceful moment, I felt some of the grips of my headache being relinquished to the air, calming me more than I had been since this whole encounter had started. I allowed myself to be distracted, hopeful even, and that's not a good thing to be in a horror story. There is no room for hope in those, at least not in mine, and I was stupid to think there was. But I was enjoying those few blissful moments until I heard my parents stop singing. I thought maybe that they were just changing the song, as the current one had stopped blasting out of the speakers. But then I heard hushed whispering, the kind they did whenever they were arguing and didn't want me to know. What do you mean? Snaps my mom. I could tell that she was aggravated, but I also saw a flicker of something else. Fear, maybe. The car isn't slowing down, responded my dad, clearly just as aggravated. I have the brake all the way down to the floor, but it isn't slowing. My parents stared at each other, clearly in shock of what that might mean. But we didn't get to fully realize it as a family because, suddenly and all at once, we realized the intersection was coming in hot. There was a lot of screaming, a lot of cursing, and a lot of honking horns, and a lot of my dad slamming his hands on the steering wheel in anger before we slammed into the car crossing the intersection. I was instantly knocked forward upon impact, slamming into the console and the shifter with enough force to knock the wind out of me and black me out. I woke up in the hospital, apparently after a few surgeries. They told me that the brake line had been cut, and that is what had caused the accident. We ran straight into the other cars, thanks to ours being unable to stop at the stop sign. My parents had died upon impact, and I made it out with a shattered kneecaps, a broken pelvis, a concussion, and severe bruising. They said that I had been very lucky to survive and survive without being paralyzed or having severe brain damage or nerve damage, but I felt far from lucky. After the incident, I barely wanted to live. I sat wallowing away in bed most days, completely convinced that I had nothing else to live for. I knew there was one last wish that hadn't yet been given, 
but there was no room for it to occupy my mind thanks to everything else taking over it. My life had become miserable all because of a stupid list of five items. Five items that I thought were a completely innocent prank at first. What even was the point of the list anyway? Why was it sent to me of all people? Why was I the one that was chosen? Every day my physical therapist would come and basically beg me to get up and try to get better. Try to exercise my limbs but I couldn't find the motivation for the longest. Eventually, he convinced me by reminding me that my parents wouldn't want me to give up. And I knew they wouldn't. It took a while but I slowly got better. I still couldn't find the motivation to take care of myself. Completely neglecting myself hygiene wise. Besides, when the nurses gave me bed baths because they pitied me, I couldn't even force myself to eat. So I wasted away like the shell of a human that I was, which didn't help physical therapy either. Despite my unwillingness and sometimes even downright repulsion to eat, a wonderful nurse named Lily tried her absolute best to get to me. She brought every meal they served to me, uncovered the tray to try to entice me, and even offered to hand-feed me. On one particular day, she just so happened to mention an item on that day's lunch menu that made my heart drop into my stomach. They're serving chocolate cake for lunch as dessert today, Mac, she said as she opened up my breakfast. She didn't notice the look of panic mixed with disgust on my face. I found myself completely unable to see my words at that moment, not because of my inability to gain motivation for any simple task, but because of fear. I feared that chocolate cake with every fiber of my being. Even still, like the always dependable and delightful person that she is, Lily brought me my lunch today with a supposedly delicious slice of chocolate cake. I didn't dare to put it in my mouth, so I didn't know. Whether she knew about it or not, I'm not sure. But there was a note slipped under the plate that my slice of cake was on. She told the detectives on my case that she didn't know about it. But I find it so hard to trust people nowadays. Even though she had never given me a reason to doubt her before. The writing on the note said, I know it's not your mom's, but that would be pretty impossible to get at this point. Happy birthday, Mac. Lily was incredibly shocked whenever I burst into tears and she couldn't really do much to console me. She still attempted for about 10 minutes which is all she could manage with all of her other patients. But I was still grateful for her trying to help. As I'm writing this, it's been 3 years since my parents died. I've tried for all 3 of those years to figure out who they were. But the cops said that they didn't have enough evidence to pinpoint who it was considering all they had was the person's handwriting. They even did an investigation on Lily, but never found anything from that route either. The only thing they could figure about the girl that the gift giver had killed was that the last place she was seen was the electronics store where she had bought the phone, and the workers there said she acted like everything was okay. She didn't have anyone with her, and no one was following her when she left, from what they could tell. After I had finally gotten released from the hospital, for a while I dreaded returning to my empty home. But after spending more than enough money on hotels, it was the only place that I could go. 
My parents' lawyer had called to let me know that I had been given everything according to their will, which was a minor plus side to everything that had happened. I still had a bit of debt to pay off from the hospital though, but at least I wasn't homeless. It didn't sit right with me that the gift giver knew where I lived, but I wasn't financially stable enough to move, clearly. Even if I was, who knew if they would find me again? Since it's been three years, I'm just now getting back into the swing of things, figuring out how to handle my life without my parents being around. I haven't had any more notes sent to me from the gift giver, so I'm finally beginning to accept that it might be over. Friends that I've made along the way have been my biggest support. It's my 21st birthday, another milestone in my life, a brand new beginning. At least, that's what I was hoping for whenever I woke up this morning. I woke up feeling refreshed and excited for the birthday plans that I had made. All of those plans, my happiness and my hope for the future came crashing down in a mere moment. Once again reminding me that I'm still and always will be in my own personal horror story. And in that moment, that painfully terrifying moment, I opened my eyes to a cupcake on my nightstand just like I had seen in my nightmares for years now, in the same spot and with a slip of paper poking out of its icing. The nightmares of this one haunting image were just now beginning to subside, but here it was once again. The cupcake was chocolate with crimson red frosting, reminding me of the liquid surrounding the girl's head, and the slip of paper contained one single line. Ready to make some more wishes. My son disappeared under odd circumstances, and he left his journal behind. Written by Zach Frost Dear patrons of the No Sleep Forum and YouTube, Please forgive me if this is not the proper way to begin a post here. I'll admit right away that I'm not exactly familiar with this website or its etiquette. My son is, was a regular here, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to help me. I really don't know what else to do at this point. Allow me to explain. My son Zach was a regular here for several years, judging from his post history. He spent a lot of time reading stories and submitting his own on occasion. He disappeared almost a month ago, and no one really knows what to make of it. He departed for a solo hunting trip on September 12, 2021, in an isolated area inside Grand Teton National Park, Wyoming. That was the last time that he's been seen. His Chevy S10 was found parked along Lupin Meadows Road, just south of Jenny Lake. His campsite was found some five miles east of his truck. His tent was torn and a lot of his supplies were ransacked by what police believe was local wildlife or possibly done by Zach himself. A search team scouted that area for weeks and my ex-husband and I went down to search as well. We never found any trace of him outside of his camp, and no one has an explanation for what happened to him. 
A lot of people believe he was dragged off by animals, but I think it may be something far stranger than that. Zack kept a handwritten journal which was found inside his knapsack in the tent. Police think that he suffered some kind of mental breakdown, and I'll be the first to admit that the things he wrote about are not easily believed. Zack struggled with anxiety and depression, but as far as I or anyone is aware, he never had any conditions that could induce something like psychosis. I also wholeheartedly believe that he wouldn't kill himself, as he's seen firsthand how devastating that can be. His cousin tragically did a few years ago, and Zack had the horrific duty of being the first person to find him. He's always been open with me about his struggles, and after that happened, he swore that he would never put me or anyone else through that. I realized that life is hell sometimes, and there is always a chance that he went back on that promise, but I believe that he wouldn't do that. I think something happened to him, something that none of us yet understand. Authorities have called off the search for now, and Zack's disappearance remains an unsolved case. I don't know where else to turn at this point, but since Zack spent so much time in this site, I thought it was only appropriate to share what he wrote in this journal. I think it's what he would have wanted, but I cannot verify any of its contents. Maybe somebody out there can connect the dots, but if nothing else, maybe Zack's journal can entertain you all one last time. I like to think it's what he would have wanted. Entry 1 9 10 20 21 pm Ah, uh, finally it's here. And not a moment too soon. I swear to God if I had to hear Jennifer ask me to stay late for another PM order, I would have crapped on her desk at the next budget meeting. I've been looking forward to this trip for months and my therapist suggested keeping this cute little journal to document my trap. They keep saying that I have anger issues, but they really wouldn't be so much of an issue if people weren't so stupid. But whatever, time to forget all about that for a few days. Hopefully I'll be able to look back on this in the future, rather than fantasizing about jumping in the trash compactor during another work week. And Ben was supposed to be with me on this trap, but of course he got wrangled into dealing with his kid instead. Yet another reason I'm glad to be single. I'll be out snagging myself a trophy buck while he's at home changing diapers. His loss, I guess. Anyways, I don't even know why I started writing this now. I'm not even there yet. Probably got at least another five hours to go. And I give it to Max until that Carl's Jr. burger is knocking on the back door. Here's to finally getting away for a bit, and hopefully being able to relax. Entry 2 9 10 2021 pm Well, I think I finally managed to find myself a good spot. It's a nice little place too. Flops Lake, I think they call it. Kind of a weird name, but it's a serene little spot. The sun's just going down now and I got my tent all set up. Nothing to do now but puff on the cigar and drink a couple of beers. My buddy Tim says this place is an excellent area to get some deer. He pointed me to a spot about 5 miles northeast, 
and claims that it's where he got the 10 point rack over his fireplace mantle. Tomorrow I'm going to start my hike in that direction and see what happens. Wish me luck. Entry 3 9-11-2021 4.15am I officially hate ducks. Not that I ever really was a huge fan of them to begin with, but now our relationship is truly unsalvageable. 2am and I'm trying to get some sleep when all I hear is a ruckus of quacks coming from the lake. Don't those feathery things ever sleep? I tried ignoring it, but the noise was like nails on the chalkboard of my brain. Something about it just really hurt me, and I couldn't blot it out. After like five minutes of the onslaught, I finally stepped out of the tent. The moon beamed a pearly glow down from the heavens, reflecting off the surface of the lake like one giant effervescent mirror. In the misty early morning haze, I just managed to see the little silhouettes of the flock of flagrant fowl happily putting across the lake. I looked at my side, planning to grab a rock and lob it in their general direction in hopes of scaring them off. I paused when something caught my eye. On top of my stovetop, something sat. Its long neck shimmered in the dew, and its beady little black eyes stared back contemptuously, as if challenging me to a duel. Quack. The nerve of this guy comes right up into my camp while his belligerent flock are out cavorting around the lake and sits right on my dang stovetop. Bird's got balls of steel, I'll give him that. Quack. Duck soup started sounding like an excellent breakfast then. I slowly crept back to my tent, retrieving the 9mm from my bag. I drew it up, but before I could take aim, the bird suddenly took flight. I heard it flap and quack defiantly as it soared back to join the rest of the water chickens. I guess his balls ain't so big after all. By that point, I knew sleep was no longer an option, and I would be up for dawn in an hour or two anyways. So, I decided to just brew some coffee and start the day. Sun's about to rise now, so I should probably get moving. Entry 4 9-11-2021 7.33pm Well, I made pretty good time today. I got blisters on my feet, sores on my shoulders, and my coveralls are filthy. Took a gnarly face plant in the mud as I was crossing the creek, but no worse for the wear. My 308 got a little drenched, but I'll dry it out, I hope. The important thing is that I think I found the spot that Tim told me about. The trail crests right on top of this hill, leaving a wide open grove down in front of me. The field stretches for at least a couple hundred yards and the hill gives me the perfect vantage point. It's a beautiful spot. Now, if I can just get some bucks to show up, I'll be in business. I thought this spot was absolutely perfect, but not long after I arrived, some old friends came and found me. I heard the commotion of quacks long before I saw them, and sure enough, the flock landed right in the field down beyond the hill. Little feathery things just out there quacking up a storm, like they own the place. This may sound crazy, but I swear one of them is staring at me. He looks like the others, brown and white with a green head, but this one has a black strip running down its left side. Its beady little black eyes don't even seem to blink. 
My swords, the same exact one that landed on my stovetop earlier this morning. Hopefully they just leave before morning, otherwise this deer hunt is going to quickly turn into a duck hunt. Can't risk them spooking the real prize. Entry 5, 9-12-2021, 2.09am. Dang, I feel like such an idiot, but at the same time it's kind of hilarious, I won't lie. So, last night I ate some dinner and then crawled into my tent to get some shut-eye. I fell asleep for a while, but partway through the night I randomly woke up. I checked my phone and realized that I could sleep a bit longer I was on the verge of doing just that when I heard something outside of my tent. It sounded like the slight pitter-patter of footsteps. I tried telling myself it was a just normal forest ambience, but it kept going. I started to grow nervous, and I was about to reach for my gun when something suddenly struck my tent. The tent rippled from the impact, and something fluttered away into the distance. I was on the verge of peeing myself and turning the tent into Swiss cheese with my 9mm, when suddenly, I heard something familiar. Quack. A wave of conflicting emotions rolled over me. Confusion, shock, anger, disbelief. But one then circumvented them all. Comedy. All I could do was laugh at that point. I mean, I could have ran outside and unloaded my clip into that dang goose, but... That definitely would have scared off the deer. I'm willing to bet it's the same exact one that tried staring me down earlier too. Whatever, I'm going back to bed now. Entry 6, 9-12-2021, 7.22pm Today started out great. I woke up just before the break of dawn and got to my prime spot on the top of the hill. The sunset crested over the valley about half an hour later and I was finally where I always wanted to be. I cracked a beer and saluted the early morning sun considering it was already 5 o'clock. AM that is, but whatever. A bit of booze always helps steady my hand anyways. I sat out there until well past noon, keeping myself occupied with a steady diet of beef jerky, sunflower seeds, and Miller Lite. And that's when I saw the grass rustling on the far end of the prairie, I slumped down and clutched my rifle, staring out as several figures stepped out from the trees. I counted three does and five fawns that slowly sauntered out from the thicket. They began grazing on the far side of the pasture about 200 yards from my position. I prayed for a buck to be leading the herd and hunkered down as I watched. They grazed for a solid three hours but the buck never showed. One of the mothers then suddenly dripped her ears, and the entire herd suddenly dashed back into the woods. I guess something spooked them, and that pretty much marked the end of my day. I got back down to my camp and prepared to cook myself a nice hearty chili and drown my frustrations in Jack Daniels. The only problem was that I couldn't find my stovetop anywhere. Spent at least an hour looking for it, but it's just not here. I don't get it. I used it earlier this morning to cook breakfast. I'm too tired to worry about it at this point. It's getting dark and I'm exhausted. At least, if I can't go to bed on a full belly, I could knock myself out with some liquor. Entry 7, 
9-13-2021, 8.47am. Okay, so I'm not trying to freak out here. I know I'm probably just being ridiculous, but I really just can't seem to calm myself down. That freaking bird won't leave me alone. I didn't sleep at all last night. Every time I felt that I was getting close, I would hear that familiar, loathsome quack. It was like the bird knew when I was about to finally fall asleep, and it would interrupt me just to make me upset. I finally grabbed my pistol and I stomped out of my tent, but I didn't see it anywhere. Things haven't gotten much better since then. When dawn finally broke, I decided to abandon any notion of sleep altogether. I hobbled out of the tent and kindled a fire to brew myself some coffee, and that's when I first noticed it. Now, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I'm close. I had swear that my tent had moved about 10 feet away from where I had set it up. It was staked down and on flat ground, so it didn't slide downhill or something. Not to mention the fact that I had literally been awake the entire night and hadn't felt it move. Part of me thinks that I'm just crazy, but another, even louder part says that I'm not. I don't understand, but as of right now, I'm gonna just chalk it up to exhaustion and me not remembering properly, which has been known to happen. Got three more days out here before I gotta start heading back, but I'm not even gonna try and get a buck today. My head is throbbing, and I keep nodding my head as I'm trying to write this. I really need a nap. Entry 8, 9-13-2021, 4-21pm. Someone is out here messing with me, I'm almost sure of it now. It would honestly explain a lot of what's been happening. The missing stovetop, the moved tent. I don't know how they're doing it, but I'm near positive that all this is more than a coincidence. Shortly after my last entry, I passed out in my camping chair by the fire. Some hours later, I woke up engulfed by the caustic smoke of smoldering ashes. I broke into a fit of coughs and quickly rolled out of the line of fire. After my eyes finally stopped watering and my throat stopped burning, I managed to acclimate. Quack. There he was again, only about 20 yards away from me, staring contemptuously with beady black eyes. That was the final straw. My former irritation gave way to outright rage. With my pistol at my side, I quickly whipped it out and aimed it towards the silhouette. He didn't flinch and I pulled the trigger. My 9mm zinged right into that little winged demon, erupting with a plume of feathers. He fell off the log, flapping and quacking in distress before falling silent a moment later. A sense of triumph washed over me, and I jumped to my feet. Relieved and proud that I had finally vanquished my harasser. I walked over to where he had fallen, and the feeling evaporated, replaced with utter confusion. The bullet appeared to have struck the creature in the lower abdomen, tearing a hole in its gut. Its intestines were dangling out of it in little coils at least. That's what I thought they were. I moved in for a closer look and could scarcely believe what I was seeing. It wasn't entrails hanging out. It was wires. I poked it with the stick and saw all manner of LEDs and circuits within. The duck which had harassed me was a robot. Screw this trip. 
I think it's time to leave. Entry 9, 9-13-2021, 8.06 p.m. Well, I'm still here, still haven't left. It's been probably three hours since I wrote my last entry. The sun is gone now, now, so that's not great. Not that I'll even be able to sleep at this point. That's just what they want me to do. These last few hours have allowed me to contemplate my situation, and I think I've figured it out, at least a part of it. The thing that I shot was obviously not a duck, and I realized that it's got to be some kind of drone. A surveillance robot designed to look just like a normal duck in order to blend in and observe. And since it is a drone, that means someone had to have built it. Drone technology has obviously advanced quite a lot in the last few years, but I had no idea that it had gotten this good. The thing behaved exactly like a normal duck would have. No jarry, robotic movements, or anything to give it away. Obviously, the government's got secret programs and technology out the wazoo that they never tell us about, so it could be them. But even that explanation has holes in it. This thing was seriously advanced, like something straight out of cyberpunk, so maybe it wasn't even built by humans after all. I know that may sound crazy, but there are a lot of stories about mysterious lights in the sky around this area. I'm not saying it's aliens, but I'm not saying that it isn't either. I realize this probably isn't the smartest decision, but I'm not leaving. Not yet. I need to figure out the truth. Metry 10, 9-13-2021, 11-39pm Okay, I'm leaving. Screw this, this is some seriously creepy stuff. I've watched enough horror movies to know where this one's going, and I don't plan on being probed. Unfortunately, it's night now, and there ain't no way that I'm walking all the way back to my truck in pitch black, especially with that thing out there. I got no choice but to wait until morning, so I might as well write out what I saw. Now, I really hope this isn't going to be a found footage situation. So after writing my previous entry, I realized that I should try and take a closer examination of that duck drone. I went back out to the spot where I'd shot it, but it wasn't there. It was only like 20 feet from my tent earlier, but it was gone now. I never heard any noise from that spot, and obviously, it never got up on its own as it was way too damaged. I still don't know how to explain that. I figured that I might as well go out and try and scout around a bit, and keep an eye out for any YouTube prankers or other shenanigans. I got to the same spot as the previous day, and proceeded to see a whole lot of nothing. I sat there for hours, and must have still been exhausted from the previous night because, at some point, I dozed off. You know that feeling you get when you take a nap, wake up, and for no apparent reason are kind of panicked when you wake up? Like it takes you a moment to remember what happened and where you are. Yeah, so picture that times like a thousand. And maybe you'll get the feeling that I had when I woke up. When I woke up in that twilight hill, nothing made sense anymore. The sun hung low in the sky, painting the landscape with a scarlet tinge eclipsed in the distance by purple clouds. That familiar and unwelcome sense of a panic attack looming then struck me. I got up and began to saunter around, 
as is my usual tactic of trying to ward those things off. It was then that I realized I had no idea where I was. It got far scarier than that though, because I for the life of me suddenly couldn't even remember my own name. If it wasn't for my rifle beside me and the wallet in my back pocket, I swear on everything I could not have told you who I was or what I was doing out there. On the brink of panic, I grabbed my supplies and trudged back down the hill, spotting my foreign campsite further down the grove. I assumed it must have been mine, although I had no conscious memory of setting it up. It was there that I found this journal though, and things started coming back. After rereading the previous entries and taking some time to reevaluate my memory, I feel as though I've stumbled upon something very strange out here, paranormal even. That stupid dog, my disappearing supplies, the random apparent amnesia. Something is doing this to me. I don't know what, but I'm a guinea pig in someone or something's little psychological experiment. It's dark again, but as soon as dawn breaks, I'm leaving. Matry 11, 9-14-2021, am I can't leave. It's no longer an option, but don't take that to mean that I don't want to leave. I would give about just anything at this point to escape this godforsaken grove. But whoever or whatever is doing this won't allow it. I woke up at the crack of dawn and thankfully things seemed pretty normal now. I packed my stuff up and began walking down the trail back to my truck. Everything was going fine. Until I hit a wall and I mean that literally. I was walking along when all of a sudden, my nose smacked right into something. I paused and took a step back as blood began to trickle from my nostril. I stared in disbelief because there was nothing in front of me. I put my hand out and felt something there. Something completely invisible but unbreachable, like some kind of force field. I struck it with my fist, kicked it, but to no avail. I then dropped all of my supplies, pulled the rifle off my back and fired a shot. The bullet struck the invisible wall, shattering on impact and sending fragments flying all over. I ducked back feeling that familiar sense of panic strike again. I can't leave. I'm not allowed to leave. The only choice that I had was to return to my previous campsite. I've just been sitting in my camp chair for hours now, watching the sun travel across the sky. It'll be going down soon once more, and I don't know what that means. I'm trying to think rationally, but that's easier said than done. Clearly, something wants me here. Something that is much more powerful than me. Whether it's God or aliens or government, I don't know. For all I know, that robot duck could have been the avatar of some eldritch monstrosity that enjoys watching me suffer. Whatever the reasoning behind all of this... I'm here for a reason. It could be a punishment, but I figure if something was trying to punish me, it would have just ended me already. I mean, if me shooting that duck thing was such an egregious sin, then surely they would have smited me. Or is it smote? What's the plural for smite anyways? Whatever, since I can't leave, I guess the only option I have is to wait. Entry 12, 9-15, 2021, 
7.06 a.m. I think I know what this place is now. Something one of my former co-workers once said had been echoing endlessly in my mind for hours. He was an older Native American guy, very attuned with folklore and urban legends and whatnot. Things I once regarded as superstitious hoo-ha that I've now been forced to reconsider. He knew that I was a hunter and he once told me to beware that lonely places. He said places devoid of humans are dangerous in ways that we cannot yet comprehend. Not because of predators or weather or anything like that, but because of someone forgetting they exist. I never knew what he meant by that, but after my previous bout of amnesia, I think that's what's happened to me. It's got me thinking about the particle slit test and how the results of that essentially reinforce the notion that Reality is altered by observing it. Maybe the same is true on a larger scale as well. I won't sit here and claim to have the answers, but there's a lot that we don't know about perception. It reminds me of the old question. If a tree falls in the woods and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? I think the better question is, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is around to perceive it, does the tree even exist? I heard things last night. Things I don't know how to explain. It started with a loud, worrying sound, which to me sounded like a helicopter. I burst out of my tent, thinking for a moment someone had come to rescue me, or at least I could flag them down. Once outside, I looked around to see if there were lights in the sky, but I saw nothing. I spent a couple of minutes looking around, but there was nothing there. It sounded like it was literally right above me, but after a few minutes, it just faded away entirely. I was about to return to my tent when a sudden immense boom thundered through the landscape. A bright orange flash illuminated the sky from somewhere in the distance. The noise was so loud that I fell flat on my back. A chorus of shouts, gunfire, and roaring then emerged going on for another few minutes. It stopped as suddenly as it began, as if someone just flipped a giant switch. The lights faded and I was left alone in silence and darkness once more. It didn't last long, until the familiar and unwelcome noise shot chills down my spine. Quack. There he was, on top of the hill looking down at me, as if I were some peasant in his diabolic regime. The look of arrogance on his face was unmistakable. Those beady little obsidian eyes and the stoic-beaked expression spewed the unmistakable contempt of kings and gods from eons past. It's him. It's always been him. He's the one doing this to me, toying with me, trying to drive me mad. But I wasn't about to submit. The two of us just stared at each other for several moments, and I tried to figure out what I should do. Since shooting him earlier didn't seem to end it, I figured that I only had one option. I took a step forward, and he didn't budge. Seconds later, I had reached him atop the grassy hill. It was like he was waiting for me to join him. I stepped beside him and peered over the hill that overlooked my former hunting grounds. Only this time, it wasn't the same. Down below us was an alien landscape. A bleak, scorched desert with scarlet sands illuminated by 
the effervescence of an enormous gleaming moon above us. The field was littered with debris, mostly broken down machinery in various states of decay. I spotted a few guns amongst the wreckage and something else. The things I glimpsed in the next passing minutes are things that I will not describe. I will only say that I was shown these secrets of reality, how it works and how the natural order truly behaves. This place is not my prison. It is a nexus. It made sense then. The weird helicopter noises, the force field. They weren't things that had been deliberately placed to impede me. They were boundaries. Various pockets of reality which had intersected in defined but simultaneously convoluted ways. The human mind isn't meant to understand how it works. Our senses are not built to travel in directions beyond the third dimension. But there are those that know how. After thoroughly ingesting all the horrific and beautiful sights before me, I turned to my feathered compatriot. No longer was he a nuisance or my enemy. He was a teacher. Is it possible to learn this power? I asked, ripping the question directly from the Anakin Skywalker himself. The duck turned to me, and I finally understood. Quack. Entry 13. No date or no time listed. This entry didn't actually contain any words. The only thing on it was the webbed footprint of what everyone assumes was a duck. That's it. That's all that he wrote. After Zach failed to return to work the following Monday, his employers contacted me asking if I had heard from him. Shortly after that, we realized that no one had heard from him, and the investigation began. The local park rangers organized a search team and scoured the area. My ex-husband and I flew down to join the effort as well. We found his truck, his campsite, and even the grove that he had written about. We did not find him, however. Search dogs were able to follow his scent to the top of a small hill just beyond his campsite, but no further. That's where we found the aforementioned journal lying in the dirt. As I said at the beginning, I cannot claim to speak for the authenticity of Zach's journal. If I'm honest, I don't even think I fully understand what he meant. All I really know is that my son is still missing, and no one has seen him since he left for his trip. Zach, if somehow you're reading this, please come home. I wasn't going to add this part, but maybe it's significant. Like I said, I cannot confirm the validity of Zach's journal. But last night, as I was trying to force myself to sleep, I was awoken by a noise. I tried looking around, but I couldn't find the source of it. I'm not even 100% sure that I heard it. But every once in a while, I swear that I hear that sound again. Quack. If your kids go out to trick-or-treat, don't let them go down Wicker Street. Written by J. Grobe. It started out like every other Halloween. My friends Ted, Joe, Kevin, and I were a team every year, flawlessly figuring out how to get the most candy by any means necessary. We all met outside of Joe's house, 
He lived right across the street from me. Ted and Kevin only lived a few blocks away. They ditched their bikes in the garage at Joe's place and we all set off down the street. Just as a dusk was darkening into night, a bloated orange crescent moon emerging from behind clouds on the horizon. The plan was to hit as many houses as we possibly could. Our weapons of choice. Jumbo pillowcases that would be stuffed to the brim with candy by the end of the night if everything went as expected. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Ted was wearing a black and red striped sweater with a Freddy Krueger mask. On his hand was a gardening glove with butter knives attached to the back of it. Terrifying, I know. And Kevin was wearing a pale blue mechanics uniform which said, Bob, on the breast pocket and had grease smeared on his hands and nose, leaving smudges of it everywhere. He wore a tool belt around his waist with wrenches and screwdrivers dangling from it. And Joe was wearing a Chewbacca mask in a furry costume that looked like it was made out of old brown shag carpeting, or maybe a couple dozen used wigs. All of us kept taking off our masks between houses, since they were too hot and sweaty to walk around in. I kept envying Kevin, who was the only one of us who had opted not to wear one. I told you guys you'd be sweating your faces off in those things, he said, smirking at us as we pulled them off for the dozenth time. Yeah, well, my costume doesn't really work without it, said Ted, looking down at his Freddy Krueger get-up. Mine either, I said, holding the Batman mask that I had in my hand. It kind of ruined the illusion if I didn't wear it making it look like the Gotham City detective had forgotten his cowl and pointy ears at home. It was just a cheap plastic mask with tiny holes cut out for seeing and for breathing out of. And my costume was mostly homemade as well, except for the flimsy plastic breastplate with the Batman symbol on it. <laughs> at least mine's a real costume, Joe chided. Gavin's parents are so poor that they couldn't even afford one. Where'd they buy that mechanic shirt for you, the thrift store? His voice was that of someone joking around, but I couldn't tell that he wasn't. I didn't say anything since I had actually gotten parts of my costume at the thrift store, and I didn't want the attention redirected towards me. Kevin didn't say anything back, just looked quietly upset and brooding for a while. I felt bad for Joe's remark. He had been mean to Kevin all week due to some dispute I wasn't privy to. But still, I knew Kevin well enough to know that Joe would get his comeuppance for the uphanded insult. Kevin was and never one to let stuff like that go. He would blow up later on and the results would be shocking. He always stored his pent-up rage and then unleashed it in brutal outbursts. As we continued walking to the next house... I couldn't help but recall when I had personally been the victim of one of those outbursts. Once, during school recess, I had said something to him as a joke. Something so innocuous that I can't even remember what it was. Kevin had been upset by it, although he hadn't said anything at the time. Instead, he waited several minutes until my back was turned, and then he kicked me as hard as he could in the butt. The only thing was is he missed. My butt and the toe of his shoe went through my legs and hit me hard in the balls. I couldn't sit down comfortably for months afterwards. You're on my list now, is what he would tell people when they pissed him off badly enough. 
and none of us were ever entirely sure if he was kidding or not. We made our way around the neighborhood in the vicinity of our own homes, working our way outwards, moving with the practiced efficiency of kids who had done this sort of thing many times before. Skipping the dark, windows-blacked-out houses and the ones where we knew they gave out raisins, apples, or, God forbid, dental floss. Our route had been planned ahead of time for weeks, and we had all the best houses from the year before plotted out. Knowing which ones gave out full-size candy bars, cans of pop, and goodie bags. And the results were unprecedented. By 8 o'clock, our pillowcases were practically overflowing and we had to stop by my house to drop off the excess. My mom supplied garbage bags and we heaped our candy into them under her concerned watch. I could see her racking up the dental bills in her mind as I shoveled a few Tootsie Rolls into my mouth and we set off once more, hoping to get another hour's worth of pillaging in. Be safe, she shouted after us. Don't eat any more candy until I get a chance to go through them all. I have to check them for razor blades. Okay, Mom. I yelled back, pedaling off on my bike, pulling a starburst out of my pocket and jamming it into my already crowded mouth. Devoid of any other nearby options, we rode towards the other end of town where the houses were spaced a bit further apart, making them less appealing choices. They all looked the same to me, and I didn't have a preference which road that we went down. How about this one? Joe asked, stopping at the end of the street that I didn't recognize. Yeah, sure, it doesn't matter to me. I sat hopping off my bicycle. At this point, we still felt like bandits after a flawless robbery spree, ready to hit one last big score. Parking our bikes at the end of the little road called Wicker Street, we locked them up to some small trees and set off for a final walk around the unknown neighborhood. In retrospect, we should have just been satisfied with what we had had back at home. It was already getting late and most of the other trick-or-treaters had finished for the night. There were only a few other stragglers out still. I hadn't spent much time at this end of town, and it looked foreign and strange to me as we ambled along the street lined with tall trees, our pillowcases now empty once again. The strange thing was... All the houses around there were blacked out. None of them were lit up or displayed with cobwebs, skeletons, or jack-o'-lanterns. There was no spooky music playing from hidden speakers. No neighbors had dressed up as scarecrows, who would jump out and frighten you when you walked by. No other kids walking around either. Not on this particular street. The four of us walked silently up the darkened road. A very few lampposts illuminated our path, but I noticed many were dead or flickering with dim, intermittent blue light. We walked through long stretches where I could barely see, except by the light of the moon. Something scurried past us in the darkness suddenly, making me jump. Part of me really wanted to turn around and run back home, but I ignored that feeling and continued on with my friends, each step more shaky than the last. None of the houses seemed to be welcoming two trick-or-treaters, and we were starting to get concerned. At least I was. Maybe it's getting too late already, I said nervously. What time is it, Kevin? He was the only one of us who wore a wristwatch, but he pretended not to hear me. 
Mia was still sulking from earlier when Joe had taken that cheap shot about his costume. I decided not to push it and just guessed it was about 9.30, judging by when Mia left my house. That was usually when folks started turning off their lights and calling it a night, wasn't it? And yet this whole neighborhood felt awake and conscious of us, despite the dark. Like there were eyes watching us from every angle. You guys want to start heading back soon. It looks like we already hit all the good places, I said, hoping my voice didn't sound as nervous as I felt. And Ted was about to say something when Joe pointed up ahead. I heard a faint sound of screaming and figured it was one of those Halloween sound effect tapes. There's one house lit up at the end there. Come on, let's see if they've got anything decent. Then we can go down the next street over on the way back to get the bikes. We all agreed and kept walking down the unknown road. The house is getting darker, dirtier, more run down and decrepit as we went along. The trees and shrubbery around the home seemed to become more deformed as well. The thick vegetation crowded closer and closer together until you could barely see the homes behind the trees anymore. Finally, we reached the place at the very end. A squat, old, gray house that looked like a giant poisonous mushroom with a sunken black roof for its cap. Gnarled and twisted fruit trees surrounded it, and the sour, sweet smell of rotting crab apples hung in the air as we approached. A handwritten plank board sign was set up out front that had been hammered down into the dirt on a wooden post. On it were scrawled strange letters and symbols that were difficult to read. And we went past the sign without giving it much thought. The sounds of screaming could be heard again from inside, louder this time. And I thought that whatever Halloween sound effect tape that they had purchased must have been expensive, since it was a very well-produced recording. The shrill cries emanating from within the house sounded completely lifelike and realistic. A woman dressed in dark, tattered clothing was standing on the front porch waiting for us, and grinning with crooked brown and yellow teeth. Her face looked ancient, covered in boils and warts and reflecting a greenish hue in the moonlight. Quite a mask, I thought at the time. It was so realistic looking. She opened the wooden front door and it swung wide with a squeal. Strangely, she held it open, as if inviting us as guests into her home. Greetings, young ones. Greetings. And blessings from the Dark One on this glorious Samhain to each of you. Um, thanks, I said, feeling suddenly very concerned. Trick or treat? We held out our pillowcases and the old woman cackled with apparent delight. Oh my, what wonderful creatures. But you'll have to come inside to get your candy. We've set up a little maze for you. And the winner gets a special prize. Her voice was cackling and song-like, a mirthfulness and something else indistinguishable disguised within it. Anticipation, perhaps. The four of us climbed the crumbling porch steps slowly and with caution. I noticed the entrance of the house had been altered, taped off with black-dyed bedsheets in an open cardboard box, which led further into another one and another one. We would have to get down on our hands and knees to go through. Past the initial cardboard box tunnel, all I could see was darkness. In there? I asked, the first one in line. 
I didn't like the looks of this, but Joe shoved me from behind, anxious to get more candy at the end of the maze. Go, man, stop being a wuss. I got down on my hands and knees and began crawling forward slowly into the darkness. Joe, Ted, and Kevin all followed behind me, and I heard their breathing echoing around me in the narrow, confined space, as well as my own. Soon, I couldn't even see my hands in front of my own face. Pitch blackness surrounded me on all sides as I shuffled forward on my hands and knees, its hard floor uncomfortable beneath me. My heart began to pound as the blackness became even blacker somehow, and I heard the soft click of the door closing shut behind us in the darkness, as if someone had locked it as quietly as they could. Guys, I don't like this, I said, still slowly crawling forward. Can we just go back? Oh, shut up, you was. Joe said in that mocking voice of his. Keep moving. It's just a stupid fake haunted house. The old bat would probably jump out and try to scare us at the end. Just pretend like you're surprised. I didn't have a lot of faith in his theories, but decided that I didn't have a choice other than to continue moving forward. Cobwebs stuck to my face at the next section, and I noticed that it smelled old and musty in there, as if the box maze had been there for a long, long time. Dirt and small pebbles bit into my knees painfully, I felt a spider or some other bug crawling in my hair, going down my back, and I let out a yelp of fear that Joe quickly made fun of me for. I tried to convince myself that these were all just scare gags, already knowing that it was just wishful thinking, but still I kept crawling along, sick to my stomach and feeling more and more worried by the second. Suddenly, something could be felt breathing on me from my right. A hot, humid stink of halitosis in my nostrils. The sound of something very large could be heard moving around, inhaling and exhaling in the blacked-out maze. My hands reached up instinctively to shield my face and smacked right into the cardboard box which was still surrounding me on all sides, except in front and behind me. What the heck? I muttered, feeling disoriented. Keep moving, said Joe from right behind me, annoying that I had stopped. It's freaking hot in here. He was right, I realized. It was getting warmer. I shuffled forward, figuring I just imagined the feeling of something large looming over us and breathing its stinking breath on me. The claustrophobia was horrible, as the boxes seemed to get smaller and smaller with every movement forward. And then it suddenly branched off into three different directions. Whoa, I said, stopping in my tracks. Which way should I go? There are three choices. Forward, right, or left. Nobody answered. I turned my head around as well as I could in the darkness. Guys? Still nothing. No response. And I could somehow sense the emptiness of the tunnel behind me. My friends were gone. Feeling terrified and wanting badly to get out of this place now, I tried to turn around. The walls around me were cardboard, I had thought, but they were sturdy somehow, utterly unyielding, and it was far too narrow to turn around now. With my heart racing, my breathing coming fast and yet still feeling like no air was reaching my lungs, I continued forward, ignoring the other two options going left and right. 
The rational part of my mind told me that everything was okay, and that this was just a game. That my friends had gone down some other side tunnel that I hadn't noticed. Or maybe the lady running the maze had snuck them out to scare me, or had altered the maze after I went past, causing them to separate from me. All these thoughts seemed plausible, but I knew they weren't what had happened. This wasn't an ordinary house, and this wasn't an ordinary maze. That was the truth. I had known it before even stepping inside. I should have trusted my instincts. I told myself bitterly. The hot, humid air was difficult to breathe, and I could feel sweat point on my face and stinging my eyes. Crawling forward, the tunnel continued on and on, sloping downwards gradually. The blackness which surrounded me was oppressive, suffocating. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face from an inch away, which terrified me more than anything somehow. I hadn't even known it was possible for a place to be this dark, this completely pitch black and lightless. I heard a loud, piercing scream coming from ahead, the voice behind it familiar to my ears. Joe. What are you doing to them? I yelled angry and afraid of what would happen next, unable to control my temper. Leave my friends alone. There was no reply and I only had one choice, to continue moving forward. The maze was branching off into different side tunnels occasionally, but I kept heading towards the sound of the screams, straight ahead. I felt the presence of something again, a hot breath on my neck and a sensation of being watched. Who's there? I asked, hoping that nobody would answer. That maybe it was just my imagination again. But instead, I heard a voice. It sounded ancient, deep and powerful. Dark and poisonous. You're almost at the end, boy. But when you get there, you'll have to make a choice. The voice told me. Its S's stretched out and elongated as if a snake was speaking to me. You'll have to pick one of your friends. Pick one of them for what? I asked, but the presence was already gone. Suddenly, I began to slide. The floor was sloping so steeply downwards now that there was no stopping it. Falling faster and faster with no sense of my velocity or how close I was to the ground. I began to scream. I landed hard on the ground, hurting my tailbone and causing my jaw to slap shut painfully. The space had opened up and I was able to stand at least. There was a dirt floor beneath my feet and I got the impression that I was in a basement. He's here. A whispered voice said from the other end of the room. Other hushed voices responded, too quiet to hear. It was so hot. I was pouring sweat and my eyes were searching desperately for any light that might mean an exit nearby. Please, just let me out. I don't want to be here anymore. I begged, unable to stop myself from crying. The whispered voices were moving closer. They seemed to be chanting something under their breath. Whatever it was, it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck and it made my stomach queasy. I heard my friend sniffling and crying in the background as well. A flame suddenly came into view, as a door with rusty hinges swung open like a mouth in the darkness. 
despite the fact that nobody was standing anywhere near it. It was a wood burning furnace, I realized. Its orange glow flickering and casting the room in dull light, allowing me to see the horrifying details of what lay around me. My eyes quickly scanned the space and I saw my friends were bound with ropes and had been laid out on flat wooden boards. They were tied down and unable to move, being drawn in towards the fire by some invisible force. Ted, Joe, and Kevin began to scream when they saw me. Their faces were red and sweaty from being so close to the flames. The chanting, whispering voices were all around me, now surrounding me and speaking furiously in my ear, their voices only audible within my mind. They told me what had to be done. There was only one way out of this. Only one thing would appease them. No, I won't. I won't. You can't make me. I yelled out, the voices ignoring my protest and whispering harsh, threatening words and telling me what would happen if I refused to listen. The fire was getting hotter by the second. It would only begin to settle once it had been fed. Only then would it be satisfied. At least for now. I did the only thing that I could do. Grabbing a butter knife from the glove of Ted's Freddy Krueger costume, I began to cut at the ropes holding him down. The fire was getting larger and hotter by the second and there was no way to slow it down. All I could do was cut the rope. Crouching back even as far as I was, the flames had burnt my eyebrows and gave me scars that I still have to this day. But Kevin and Joe got it the worst. Especially Joe. With the flames growing larger and larger by the second, Joe's skin began to melt. It sloughed from his face and he wailed and screamed to make it stop. I cut as fast as I could but the ropes were sturdy and strong. It felt like it was taking hours to cut through them. And meanwhile the howling screams of agony continued. Although Kevin was strangely quiet, as if listening. After finally cutting Ted free, I noticed Kevin too had gotten out of his bonds. Using the screwdriver from his costume's tool belt to cut the ropes. He looked frantic. His face horribly burnt and mangled, his smoke reddened eyes wide and crazed. He made no effort to help Joe. I couldn't think about the fight that the two of them had had, and the insult that Joe had made earlier. Stumbling over towards Joe, I saw Kevin had the wrench gripped tightly in his fist. He stood over him for a moment, watching him scream and mouth, and then he brought the wrench down hard on Joe's head caving in his skull. The sound was like a hammer smashing a watermelon, and he brought it down again and again and again. Red splattered in the air and it sprayed everywhere. I ran over grabbing his wrist, trying to stop him but it was already too late. Joe was gone, his face unrecognizable, utterly ruined by these swings of Kevin's wrench. Only way, it was the only way, I heard him quietly mutter afterwards. Had to do it or they wouldn't let us go. A dim light was suddenly visible and I realized that we were alone again. The whispering, chanting voices had fled, temporarily appeased by the sacrifice of our friend, it seemed. Part of me wondered if they had ever been there to begin with. Regardless of their physical presence, 
There is a powerful magic surrounding this place, capable of influencing others to do its bidding. Dull blue light was filtering through boards above us at the edge of the room, and I moved towards it. I was desperate to get free from the blistering heat of the furnished room. Except, it wasn't really hot in there anymore, I realized. In fact, it was quite cool, making me shiver as the sweat turned to cold on my skin. I bumped into a ladder and began to climb, pushing up the trapdoor at the top and taking in fresh cool air and heaving breaths. Ted and Kevin followed me up and we realized that we were standing amongst the ruins of an old, burnt-down house, neglected and abandoned in the middle of a forested area. Disoriented, we began to walk back towards the light of the nearby neighborhood, which could be glimpsed through the thick trees. We were a great distance away from it. I couldn't but wonder if most of Worker Street had just been a conjured illusion. With some alarm, I noticed that Kevin still had a blank look on his face, betraying no emotion after what had just occurred. I lifted Ted and saw that he was terribly shaken, unable to speak. I wanted to ask them what we would do now. What would we tell Jill's parents? Instead, I said nothing. Too scared of Kevin to confront him after what he had done. The three of us never really spoke again after that night, except in the police interviews. Kevin said one last thing to me as they took him away in handcuffs. You're on my list now, Jordan, and I'm putting you at the very top. I haven't slept well lately, not since the news. I just found out. They sent me a letter as a courtesy. After all these years, Kevin is finally being released from prison this Halloween. Thank you all so much for listening today. Halloween is right around the corner, everyone, and that chill in the air is becoming extra brisk now. I hope you're all enjoying the greatest part of the year as much as I am. I would like to extend a giant thank you to today's sponsor, Simply Safe. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/mrcreeps. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire system and your first month of monitoring service for free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash mrcreeps. As always, I hope you have a fantastic morning, day or night, no matter where you are at in the world. And of course, make sure to stay creepy.